You're listening to Astroscope, astrology podcast by Mark Lerner and Great Bear Enterprises. This podcast is sponsored by Buzzword Consulting and Forfame.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to podcast number 50. Let me introduce this to you. It is now a couple of minutes after midnight at the beginning of May 27th, 2020. And I'm on the West Coast in Oregon, and we've got Capricorn Rising, uh, Pisces, Part of Fortune, which I explained once before and will explain another time, which is the synthesis of the moon, the rising sign, and the sun, coming from Arabic astrology. I wasn't planning to do this podcast right now. I was going to wait another day or two, but I wanted to do it exactly a week ago when suddenly I obtained more information. What we're doing here is after the last podcast, number 49, which was entitled Coronavirus and Astrometeorology, Supercyclone Amphan, which hit the area of eastern India near Kolkata and also hit western Bangladesh near Dhaka and was a very destructive storm in that area. Many people died. Thousands of people lost their homes. It is a major catastrophe, and they are trying to deal with that in both India and Bangladesh. We are now presenting Coronavirus and Astrology Part 13. We're entitling this Pallas Athena, Immunology, and the Genetic Code. And this new podcast includes three charts. The horoscope for Gregor Mendel, born on July 22, 1822, and recognized in scientific fields as the father of genetics. Also, the chart for the Uranus-Neptune conjunction on October 24th, 1993, at 19 degrees of Capricorn, and the horoscope for the first podcast overall in our Mark Lerner Astrology Radio Astroscope series, and that first podcast occurred on May 2nd, 2019, and plus, and this is all available at the Great Bear Enterprises website, in the Mark Lerner Astrology Radio Astroscope section, We have the covers for three Welcome to Planet Earth astrology magazines that I had published back in the 1980s and 90s. Those three particular covers are from November and December 1993, as well as Virgo 1994. So without further ado, um, I would like to get some things out of the way here. And these particular areas that I'm going to share right at the beginning are important because I actually can't cover them with any great uh, focus at, at this time. But I just want you to know that what I'm about to share, these are upfront stories before we get into the heart and soul of my reading from several articles uh, from those magazines that I just mentioned from 26 to 27 years ago. Here's what I'm not able to cover at this time, but at another point I may uh, weave this into some of the future podcasts, and I do have a whole bunch of podcasts at least 12 to 15 podcasts organized to do over the next several weeks. So what I'm not going to share at the moment, but I just want to mention this briefly, um, are certain particular areas. We have the issue of uh, the President of the United States uh, going to the Ford plant a couple of days ago in Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, and the whole issue of him apparently wearing a mask behind the scenes, not wearing it uh, in front of the cameras and his mentioning that he didn't want uh, the press to get the pleasure of seeing him wearing a mask. 
So there's that issue, and I wrote a bunch of notes about that and the whole issue with the mask. Uh, we just had yesterday, which was Memorial Day, where uh, Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden and his wife Jill, both wearing masks, um, honored uh, veterans, and they were wearing, wearing masks where they went, and they were mocked by uh, Britt Hume on Fox TV for wearing masks, even though that's what a person in charge of our government should be doing. And of course, we know that uh, President Trump um, decided not to wear a mask where he was. Um, so we have that issue. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of in-depth areas on that. Now, the other thing I really wanted to share, but I can't do it, um, has to do with what happened a couple of days ago when the President of the United States, in a three-minute address, which I watched, on TV demanded that um, not just churches, but synagogues and mosques reopen, that he would override governors if they uh, if they didn't do what he wanted. Of course, you can only override uh, the House and the Senate. Uh, overriding governors doesn't work. Nobody overrides governors. Um, I d don't want to get into a whole tiff about that, particularly if anybody's listening and they support the President of the United States. Um, governors are in charge of their states. Um, and as somebody pointed out to the President of the United States not too long ago, um, it's the states of the Union, the 13 colonies that came together creating the Constitution. They're the, the states were the ones who decided to have three branches of government, a judicial, legislative, and an executive, so that the President of the United States and the Congress and the judiciary and the Supreme Court, they're all part of something that the states created. This wasn't created by George Washington um, as the first president of the United States. He was he was asked to form the first government and he chose to do so, wasn't actually too happy about doing so. And when he left office, his farewell address uh, is pretty much, uh, you can go back and read what his farewell address was and how disappointed he was with Congress and the whole system of government at that particular point. He didn't live that many more years thereafter, never saw the beginning of the 1900s. Um, what I'm also not going to share about, which is also a big issue, but just to bring it to your attention, I've shared before that um, I, I happen to enjoy, sometimes I don't enjoy it, I must be honest, but enjoy looking through what's called Smart News, just like the name Smart and News. It's an app. Um, it's available whether you have um, an Apple-type phone or an iOS-type phone or mobile device, or if you have uh, an Android device, you can um, get a lot of interesting stories, left, right, center, um, national, international, spiritual, mundane, whatever it is. So it's a whole variety. allows me to do the part of my life of the last 50 years where I've been a reporter, as I've shared before, I was fortunate to write for the Michigan State News when I was there in the 1960s and early 70s. It feels like another life. And I will eventually I'll share some of those articles with, with all of you. The young Mark Lerner, uh, a.k.a. Lawrence Lerner, Larry Lerner, because my name was Lawrence when I was born and I changed it. I shared this once before using the name Mark when I was 28 years old and I was at the Fintorn community in, in northern Scotland. So... Uh, I don't mind sharing that I had a different first name. I've never legally changed my name, actually, because I uh, never wanted to go that far. Um, but one of the things that we see happening over the weekend um, is the, the Chinese government, People's Republic of China, are trying to 
change how they took over Hong Kong from, from the United Kingdom in 1997. And so there was rioting over this weekend. I particularly watched some of that on TV on Sunday, unfortunately, as uh, China is trying to get cracking down on the protesters who are very supportive of a much more democratic Hong Kong. And that's something you can check out through Wikipedia and other areas and all kinds of going to Google, Safari, wherever you get, can go online to see what is happening in Hong Kong. Because that situation is is only the beginning. We're going to, as I've shared before in other podcasts, when, uh, on this coronavirus and astrology series, I've gone back to the bubonic plague, the Black Plague of the 1340s, uh, which, ne- which continued for many, many years in many ways. And this is what's so disappointing um, of what, what many of us saw on TV this weekend. It's one thing we, everybody wants to get out and enjoy um, more of being in nature, but to see people, whether it's in the Ozarks or in different places, no social distancing, not wearing masks, just frolicking around as if it's all over is so dangerous. And I guess my key, key word of this, this part of the program, shall I say, up front here, um, I want you to think about, this is going to be another long one because I'm going to be reading from several magazines. So imagine if I share for three hours, which is possible, I'm going back into these stories. Uh, imagine you're on a plane trip to Hawaii and they put on some kind of a very long movie and you're watching it and tuning in and trying to get through it all so that you're not thinking so much about being in an aircraft. Um, that's what this is. Okay, so again, I'm just bringing some of these points. Um, I've got to mention these because if I if I didn't do this, I would be going to the smart news downloads from my phone and that would take like three hours to do so i'm hoping to finish this up in 10 minutes and then get to why this is such an important podcast number 50 about palace athena immunology and the genetic code so hong kong we'll talk about that another time the reason i brought up the bubonic plague and the black plague of the 1340s is we need to understand what we're dealing with here um we're going to have protests and revolutionary activity in places like Hong Kong. There'll be activities happening in the People's Republic of China itself with over a billion people. We're going to have issues over the next couple of years in Russia. Um, this is these all these areas where there's authoritarianism, including the United States, including places like Turkey and the Philippines and Syria, uh, North Korea, China. Um, Due to the cycles that are going to be happening, I've shared a lot about, particularly America, having three Pluto returns in 2022. Three times Pluto will come back to where it was from July 4th, 1776. Um, And so mundane Earth astrologers, people focused on the United States chart have been looking at that. We didn't know the pandemic was going to happen, but now we know we can see the handwriting on the wall with this pandemic and the authoritarianism that is creeping in. It's not so much creeping in, but it's very apparent. If you have eyes to see, if you watch the news, you tune into wherever you're going. And if if you're broad-minded and open-minded, you will see in slow motion what is happening through the federal government and how we have a new deep state um, taking place. Deep states have existed for thousands of years. It's nothing new. And when we think of Russia, uh, it's not like there's a deep state inside of Russia. Russia itself, its own government is the deep state. People's Republic of China, it is the deep state, and it's been that way for 70 years. Uh, And we go around the world, um, deep states 
are happening all the time. Every country actually has to have one of these deep states, but it's very, very scary, uh, very disappointing, scary. I don't know what other words to start using to see the formation of that happening right before our eyes with uh, the president of the United States, with the vice president, particularly with the attorney general, Bill Barr, who 30 years ago was part of another deep state with uh, George Bush number one as president when he was attorney general the last time. So once the president of the United States found his uh, Roy Cohn, as we would say, the person that uh, President Trump learned from about never backing down and always uh, picking a fight with somebody so that he would never lose any kind of uh, dispute or disagreement or anything. So now we've got the formation of a deep state. And I can guarantee you four years from now, eight years from now, assuming the country is still in one piece, and hopefully it will be 12 years from now, people will look back and the deep state they'll be talking about will be the Trump, Pence, Bill Barr, and whoever was part of all of this, that will be the deep state that the future people who apparently, whoever those people are, left, right, center, libertarian, whoever, some uh, team of rivals, as Doris Kearns Goodwin has shared about the time period of Abraham Lincoln, we've got to think ahead, we've got to look ahead, we've got to look up and down and see what's actually happening in front of us so that we know some, to some extent where we're all going. Okay, uh, by the way, I, m I may have mentioned this before, but on TV, the domestic violence um, issues, particularly for women, children at home, because of children being out of school, um, a number was shared on TV. It's 1-800-799-7233. 1-800-799-7233. Um, this has to, it's www.thehotline.org. This has to do with, if any of you listening in the within the sound of my voice here concerning domestic violence, um, this was shared by a New York City reporter, uh, and it's very important, and they flashed this, this number on TV. Um, but at least I mentioned it. Um, when the President of the United States, uh, and this is very important because this actual podcast is really all about a subtitle from the Sagittarius 1993 issue. You'll see the cloning question. You'll see two embryos with a question mark and beneath that uh and again this is from 26 and a half years ago uh subtitle a new science versus religion battle erupts exactly as uranus conjuncts neptune so we're the reason i'm going back to reading that uh from that issue and a couple of other issues is that when we had uranus and neptune coming together uh at that point it was the first time that those two important key planets which have a lot to do with science versus religion. Uranus in particular has a lot to do with science and Neptune has a lot to do with religion. And so those two planets came together three times in 1993, the last time being October 24, 1993. That's what I'm gonna be reading from. And now we have the same battle that's still happening. And so this past Friday, that was made totally clear when uh, the president of the United States in three minutes on TV, and I watched that live, demanded that, uh, and the way whoever his writers were, because he read it from a teleprompter, not just the churches that he demanded open, but synagogues and places of worship, that they were essential, that they were essential, uh, because he blamed uh, at that point, uh, particularly Democratic governors saying, well, if liquor stores are essential, if um, abortion clinics are essential, um, then 
churches and synagogues and mosques have to be, and he didn't just say he's requesting or he's hoping or working with governors and mayors to work this out and do it all safely. It was an angry speech. He, he immediately walked off the stage and he demanded and threatened the governors, particularly of the democratic states. The, part of the thing I want to say here without getting into all the detail, because this was covered you know, over the entire weekend, of course, it was Memorial Day weekend, and there's already so many things uh, through tweeting that the president has said that are absolutely outrageous in condemning certain people. Many people that he has outraged over the weekend are people in the armed forces, and it's a very scary thing to see what's been happening on Twitter, uh, that particular universe in that particular area, and how destructive that can be rather than being an area of love and understanding and sort of everybody working things out more peacefully and uh, following um, the scientific and medical uh, suggestions of wearing masks and distancing and things like that, we're seeing something very different, which is electioneering uh, and the need for this particular administration to stay in power at all costs. Um, so this battle between religion and science, it, it nobody stands up there whether uh, a president or a vice president or um, the attorney general and makes a statement by saying, hey, we're on the side of religion and all of these scientists and medical people, you know, go to H-E-L-L or go to heck or whatever they might say. But that's what's actually happening. So it, you can't play both of these things. You can't have medical experts and um, we should all be following that. And then the person who's in charge of the government uh, the president, the vice president, attorney general, and different people don't wear the masks. They don't want to do that for whatever reason, uh, making everybody else do it or suggesting everybody else do it. And that was a very, very scary thing. The thing about liquor stores, which I'm not somebody who tends to drink, and I know the president of the United States, apparently because his older brother um, died from drinking and drugs or whatever it is. So he's, uh, as always said, he doesn't drink. He doesn't um, take drugs. Um, that's what he says. And I believe him if he says he's not, he's not drinking. But the reason liquor stores are open has nothing to do with people um, wanting to um, drink a whole lot of al alcohol necessarily, because in, in many towns that are very small, particularly in agriculture areas, the only stores might be a store that also carries liquor, and those stores also carry cigarettes in small towns. And what I heard is also, uh, and also when people go in there, they should wear a mask. And it's not as if they're all congregating in a church or a synagogue with large numbers of people where social distancing may not happen. We've already learned that people in, in a choir back in March in the state of Washington singing and not necessarily social distancing and maybe with one person being a super spreader, 50 people wound up getting uh, coronavirus, the COVID. Um, and we're learning more and more about how it's passed along and the different kinds of things. So people go into a liquor store wearing a mask, buy some kind of liquor or cigarettes. And if the liquor stores had been deemed non-essential and had closed, one of the things that I had read, which makes a lot of sense, is that too many people would not be able to get their drinks. They would There would be more uh, crises of alcoholics with withdrawal, same thing with people or depend on having cigarettes and so on, particularly in small towns where the main store, if there might only be one, one store and they have liquor and cigarettes in that particular store. So if you're in a big city, you might think, well, why do the liquor stores have to remain open? I mean, pe people don't 
absolutely have to be drinking uh, hard liquor. People go into a grocery store and get wine or beer in a grocery store if it's if it's big enough. Uh, so um, comparing liquor stores or abortion clinics or um, any kind of clinic where, again, you would probably be wearing a mask and wait your turn. It's not like 50 people in a church or 100 people in a, a church or a synagogue or a mosque who might not be social distancing. Then you get one super spreader somewhere and then so many hundreds or thousands of people. So um, this whole issue of, of demanding, the president of the United States demanding uh, the opening up of churches, synagogues, and mosques leaves a lot to be desired. It's one thing to request that to happen. And if you're going to make a demand, not so much that you'll override governors, but what you really need to do is demand that ministers and leaders uh, in, in synagogues and mosques absolutely adhere to the rules and the things that must be done in a coordinated way. And if you do that, then that makes at least some logical sense. So um, anyway, yeah, I did a chart, which I might do in the future for the exact time. It's called Trump on Religion, May 22nd, 2020, 148 and 30 seconds p.m. Washington, D.C. It's a really fabulous chart. It's very intriguing and I'd love to cover it and it's very powerful, but I really can't do that and do everything else I want to do here. But the whole issue of religion and worshiping and comparing things to liquor and abortion it's interesting that he just sort of gave those. If you remember, we had the whole Roe versus Wade issue. And by the way, um, the woman who was considered AKA Jane Roe, there was just a special that came up this Friday on FX. Uh, I didn't watch it, but I did save it uh, um, concerning the particular woman who was at the center of that case from 1973. And we did a cover story, which I may uh, go back to. And I, and I was all prepared even in this uh, podcast to share from that particular storyline. And it turns out that the woman who was at the center of that uh, actually never had an abortion. There was all these kinds of things that went on that people didn't know about. So that may still be on FX and it's worth your while to uh, watch that particular show. That woman has now passed on. I'm pretty sure the woman has passed on who was at the center um, of who was considered uh, Jane Roe at that particular point. Um, the other thing that is really alarming, um, we know that a lot of the states, the rural states, are now having a tremendous increase, places like Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, and, and the list goes on in different places, um, and it's very alarming. So while so many, so many different people are coming out, making it seem like it's, it's over, the pandemic isn't happening, let's just, I, I keep thinking of... Um, was it Henry VIII, the idea of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die, kind of that phrase from, from history where there's a kind of feeling. In fact, I saw one person um, who was at one of these parties or pool parties saying, hey, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go, and I'm, I'm a free person, and if I want to go out, I'll do it, and making it sound as if, okay, well, if he's going to die, he's going to die. And he doesn't realize, of course, that he might have this particular coronavirus, and that's the whole reason to wear a mask. Because the difference with this particular virus and it being new and the fact that we don't have antibodies and that anybody could be carrying it is people being asymptomatic. So it's way different than if, you're, if you've got a cough or a cold or you're sneezing and you've got the beginning 
of a flu or a cold and it's noticeable. In this case, you could be you could have the virus inside of you, you wouldn't have any symptoms, and you go out and you say, like this particular fellow who said, hey, you know, I'm a free person, I can go out, and if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and it sounds like, well, there's nothing to worry about. It sounds perfectly reasonable, except for the fact that that person in the middle of a church or the pool party or at the bar or whatever it is, not wearing a mask, not caring, thinking he or she is totally, in, you know, invulnerable or if, or if they're going to die, so what? They could start being a super spreader because they could have it because they picked it up the other day or five days earlier or whatever. Plus the fact that uh, it's not good enough to say, uh, well, um, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Because let's say that person, uh, in this case, the particular guy goes home, his wife is at home, maybe there's a baby, there's a grandparent, their friends come over and he picked it up that particular day when he was so cavalier in his attitude and now he's infected a whole bunch of people or even just one person in that household, then that person goes out the next day, they infect somebody else, and that's how this thing has been going around the whole planet. Okay, Lori Garrett. Oh, boy, I mean, I I would love to get her birth information. She is brilliant. Um, so at some point, I'd like to do everything on her. She was going to be a doctor. She's a researcher. She's written these incredible books. She's been on Lawrence O'Donnell several times. She's been on other places. And she's... Um, she is very tuned into all of this. That's all I can say. Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E, last name Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. Look her up on Google, Safari, wherever it is. You'll learn about her books. And she has been part of um, uh, the Ebola research. She's been to Africa. Her views are astounding. Um, I just, I'm so impressed with whenever I hear her. She was on the other day, let's see, that was just May 25th, just a, a night and a half ago, and she was on for quite a long time, and she has talked about the fact um, that we're going to be dealing with, and this is at a minimum, so I'm going to just say what she was talking about, and I, I was watching it, I was like, okay, makes sense, three years, that's how long we're going to deal with this thing, at least, and that's if we pull off all kinds of good things. The other thing about you can find different stories, and some of these are on Smart News. Hey, they're working on a vaccine, and this place or that, or it's not. You'll see different articles from different areas, from particularly the more Trumpian areas saying, oh, it's not as bad, it's not as transmissible, you don't have to worry, as long as you don't have uh, hypertension, as long as you don't have diabetes, as long as you don't have this or that. Part of the problem with that, with these articles, is so many people don't know whether they have diabetes. They don't know. They're not getting their blood pressure taken every day. A lot of people who are very angry and very intense and who think they're fine, you know, America right or wrong, I'm going to do my own thing, have high blood pressure. Now, it's true that um, statistics are showing, uh, and just through doctors and uh, hospitals, that a lot of minority groups for different reasons may have high blood pressure. They may have issues with diabetes and other kinds of things, which is why so many uh, minority uh, groups are having problems. Black community, uh, Hispanic community, the Navajo Nation. Um, in, in many cases, a lot of this has to do with poverty. It has to do with not having adequate health resources and not going to doctors and other kinds of things. And so there are these clusters that are really disturbing and, so, and the percentages of people dying from minority communities. Of course, a lot of people in minority communities in city life particularly are the 
essential workers who are driving buses and taking care of mass transit and on front lines with grocery and on delivery and so on. And of course, we've got all of the medical and health professionals uh, putting their lives at risk, you know, in the hospitals and the clinics and so on. So Lori Garrett, just tune into her. So three years would be the earliest. And one of the things she talks about, um, which is so important, is she's talking not just about, oh, okay, herd immunity, maybe we don't need the vaccine. She talks about a vaccine that has to go for seven plus billion people to truly treat the whole planet. And one of the things that's really interesting in her approach, and I've heard her mention this a couple of times now, is she's talking about, see, you go to some places and they'll say, and she just mentioned this the other night on the Lawrence O'Donnell show, she said, there are actually uh, medical clinics and so on saying, well, this vaccine that we could have in the fall or early next year, which again, she thinks is way, way too soon because there's never been a vaccine for actually any coronavirus. And the, the, the fastest vaccine was for the mumps for four, it took four to five years. So even though the president has created Operation Warp Speed, and we know why we, he's creating all that, he wants to get something going or apparently going before the November election and hoping that uh, the economy is moving up, as they call it, in a V-shape so that people will, will look at um, Joe Biden and his running mate and say, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't, that was a long time ago. Joe Biden's too old and they'll just stick with President Trump and his team because they're so active and doing all these different things. And we know there's all this massive misinformation and this rush, I was going to almost say rush to judgment, just like the book um, that Mark Lane wrote about the Kennedy assassination that, that actually changed my life and made me a reporter uh, back in the 1960s and start my career in journalism and reporting. Uh, but the rush to um, try and get a vaccine and I have family members and I know so many different people. Remember, there's the anti-vaccine movement and Robert Kennedy Jr. is uh, a, a strong figure in that um, over the years. And so I've read some stories that right now, 20% of Americans, one out of every five people, if you see five people, one out of every five on the average would say, I'm not going to take the vaccine or any vaccine. And we're having problems of people continuing measles vaccines for their kids and all kinds of other things. So we've got problems that have been existing all along. Of course, people will not, a large number of people, uh, particularly younger people, never get a flu uh, shot. And so there's a whole bunch of issues on that. And there'll be more people getting flu shots, of course, uh, coming up so that doctors are alarmed and hospitals and clinics are alarmed that if, if more people don't get the flu shot, then too many people will be running into ERs and hospitals and clinics this fall when the coronavirus, which will not disappear, it doesn't just disappear quickly, no matter what you're reading, it will be there. It will be out in the world. So Lori Garrett has talked about, we need not so much a shot, okay, but something that can be safely de delivered around the whole planet to seven to eight billion people to really make a dent in all this. And that vac vaccine would have to not be refrigerated. And a lot of um, what she was talking about on the show the other day was uh, some of these clinics are talking about keeping the vaccine on dry ice or keeping it refrigerated. And if you're going to move a vaccine from Geneva, Switzerland, or from Germany, or from 
Oxford, England, or Washington, D.C., or wherever it originates from, wherever the main vaccine originates from, and to be able to get that. There are also issues of the little bottles, the actual glass that would, that would have a vaccine, and even the rubber stoppers. So just as we weren't prepared in this country um, with a faulty test and not doing things clearly and had a go our own government saying it's a hoax, it's, it's gonna go away and all these things and missing all these weeks of time. I've explored that in so many of these coronavirus and astrology previous podcasts, there's hours and hours and all kinds of charts, the charts for the World Health Organization, the charts for the, C for the CDC, the chart for China, uh, America's birth chart, our progressed birth chart, and so many other charts in this series. Uh, at any rate, Lori Garrett has written extensively, and she also reminds us, just like with the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague and the Spanish Influenza, which I shared about before in a series of podcasts talking about the discovery charts of Uranus and Neptune and uh, the chart for when Spanish influenza started in March of 1918 and the second deadly wave thereafter. So I've coordinated through all these podcasts, these connections, and thanks to Lori Garrett and so many of these other reach researchers, uh, doc, Dr. Michael Osterholm uh, out of Minnesota, again, an epidemiologist expert who's also sharing where he keeps on talking about the fact that we're only in the second inning, and it's a long second inning of a nine-inning game. And people have said, well, when, doctor, when are we going to get out of the second inning? You've been talking about that for a month or two months. And he said, it's a long second inning. And so we've got various doctors, and not everything medically, and not everything from the World Health Organization, certainly not from the CDC, have been up to snuff here. We've had so many different um, problems and challenges, but that doesn't mean that we throw out medicine and that we don't listen to science. So these are all important things. Also, I want to mention uh, Fareed Zakaria, and hopefully some of you will catch this again. It was an extraordinary one hour, and this was just on Sunday night, uh, the, the night before Memorial Day, China's Deadly Secret. Um, everybody should watch this. And regardless of your feelings about CNN, this showed the history um, in one hour of the People's Republic of China. And I'm one of these persons. Look, China committed grave errors in this whole thing, and they are responsible for how this came out. I've shared this before, connected to the Chinese Lunar New Year and their misinformation and waiting six days at a particular point and letting massive numbers of people out of the greater province of 60 million people, the Hubei province, and locking down um, uh, Wuhan way too late, letting so many people out. But from a visual standpoint and looking at their leader Xi and other things, and it's really an indictment of what happened with China at the beginning and the concerns of what kind of nation they are as an authoritarian power that will keep things in a very, very detrimental way in terms of the balance of power in the world. And again, issues between our leader and theirs, they're uh, born, uh, Donald Trump is a June 14, 1946 baby, and um, Xi is born June 15th in the 1950s. And so they're one day apart and they're both sun sign Geminis, which helps to explain why the president of the United States and the president of China are very much pals. They're uh, in sync, shall we say, simpatico through their sun signs. And there are other reasons 
when you look at um, President of China's chart, connecting it to the United States chart, and so on. Same thing with the President of the United States with Vladimir Putin's chart and connections, particularly through the sign Gemini, but it's also through other particular signs and connections with the planet Mars of why we see a number of these authoritarian leaders. But if you can watch at some point, maybe it's on YouTube or some other place, but I'm sure it will show again. It, they just showed it um, last night. Again, China's Deadly Secret. That's the name of the show, hosted by Fareed Zakaria with excellent reporting from people in China, from different reporters, a great balance about history, who the Chinese, their, their kind of government, and what the challenges are in trying to trust them again in the future. The other thing about um, that's of great concern is what's happening with Brazil and in Chile and in Peru. South America is getting enormously hit they're about to go into their winter because as we in South America, as we go into our summer, they're going into their winter. And we know that when we have our winter or fall and winter is when flu comes back and we're going to have on top of the normal flu and the problems with flu, uh, we're going to have this coronavirus. And so uh, if you can listen to Lori Garrett, people like Dr. Michael Osterholm out of Minnesota, uh, watch this show uh, from uh, Fareed Zakaria, China's Deadly Secret, catch up on what's happening in the authoritarian-ruled Brazil. Uh, the President Bolsonaro is a another one of these authoritarian leaders who actually came to the uh, White House, met with President Trump, and a member of his staff came down with coronavirus just as the president had a valet uh, from the Navy come down. And we also know that, uh, I guess it was the chief of staff, to Vice President Pence came down positive with coronavirus, with the COVID. And of course, so in so many ways, they're not, they're not um, wearing their masks. And they will keep saying things about it being more of a hoax and so on. Um, again, before we go on to doing these stories, uh, I mentioned just briefly before, this whole anti-vaccine energy movement, which is going on, has been going on for many years now. So we've got this, even though there's the operation warp speed of the president of the United States to try and get a vaccine. And some of the time he'll say, yeah, people need to social distance. And I've said this over and over and so on. At the same time, he's not following the, the prescription, shall we say. He's not demonstrating for the country what a real leader at this point would do to wear a mask and to do things safely because now we have so many people. In fact, last night I also saw another interview. Uh, I forget where it was. It might have been in Florida, somewhere else, where people were out of the beach. And the young man who's with his partner said, well, if the president doesn't have to wear one, why do I have to wear one? And, and this is the big thing, because we know you're not going to see thousands of interviews. You're going to see an interview here and an interview there. The picture of the people at a pool in uh, the Ozarks all kind of as if like this was a championship victory or something. People all in a pool, singing, dancing, frolicking around, dozens of people all over the place. Uh, there was another one in Daytona Beach where there were all these people gathering as they were going to a beach or not. Someone interviewed the mayor of Daytona Beach who said, yeah, this is serious. And now I guess wherever the Ozarks, uh, that area is within 90 miles or so of St. Louis, that the greater county there, they put out the word, although they can't demand it, that they're asking everyone who was in the Ozarks during that party to please 
isolate themselves for two weeks. Now, the odds of them doing that is remote, but that's what was requested. But again, we're in a country, it's, it's so different. The totalitarian nature of China is what created the problem in the first place. And then their temporary solution was also because they're totalitarian, because they locked down Wuhan. They didn't let anybody out. They watched the show with Fried Zakaria, and they've shared this before in many other news programs. If you want to tune into it, their totalitarian system was able to begin the process, even though their numbers may be skewed. We don't necessarily, we're not getting accurate numbers. Even in this country, it's definitely worse in terms of total numbers than we're we're seeing. And a lot of states have begun the process of providing misinformation through graphs. Um, this has happened in Florida and it's happening in other areas, depending on who's, who is in charge and who the governor is of that state. Because um, even on the federal level, the president of the United States has, has basically shifted gears. We're not seeing the task force. We're not seeing Dr. Fauci. We're not seeing Dr. Burks. Uh, like it was. For a while, it was every day. And the president was usurping um, the role of Vice President Pence, who he had put in charge. And we were seeing the doctors. Now, suddenly, they're they're gone. Okay, now it's the election time, and they have to stay in power. And we're going to see more and more and more, which is, I said, disappointing. It's dangerous. I don't know what other words to use. Uh, handwriting on the wall. Now, a couple of other things is that I just wrote um, an Astroflash, which is on a Great Bear Enterprises website, and it's about the four main asteroids and what was different about four years ago and how Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, where they were four years ago during the uh, contest between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and where they are now. Um, if you've listened to some of these podcasts before, you know I have touted the importance of Pallas, Athena. But I've also mentioned Ceres, Juno, and Vesta. Tonight, Juno has stationed in Libra and is very powerful. Also, in our new app, okay, which is Astrology Cosmic Calendar, three words, you can get it for your phone, for your iOS-type phone, Apple phone, um, your uh, Android-type phone, Astrology Cosmic, the normal spelling, calendar with a K, um, and you will find that and you can download that. And in there, we have a Astrology in Five, these short podcasts that I'm reading from Mysteries of Venus, a book that is out of print that I, that I wrote in 1986 that allow you to learn all about Venus. We have a section called Astroflash. We have a bigger Astroflash section on the Great Bear Enterprises website in our Earth Aquarius News Department. That's the name of our old website from many years ago. And in there are all kinds of um, stories with charts, as well as this latest Astroflash about the four main asteroids in 2020. And if you want to learn more about the asteroids and you're not into it, um, in our astrology shop at Great Bear Enterprises, please consider ordering. It's not that expensive, and there's a discount right now of 25%. So if you go to our website, go to the astrology shop, it's called Four Asteroids in Chiron. And it, it doesn't give you your transits of those, but it will show you exactly where those four asteroids and Chiron were in, which signs of the zodiac at your birth, what houses, as long as you provide your month, day, and year, and your time as close as possible, and your city and state and country. Then when you order one of those reports, four asteroids and Chiron, you'll start knowing more about the power of these goddess energies that are in your birth chart, because you may have done 
uh, had your charts done by an astrologer, wasn't focusing on them, and they are so important to whether if you're a guy, the feminine side of your life and the women you know, and if you're a woman, then you need to know where those goddess asteroids are, as well as Chiron. The signs that they're in, the houses they're in will be provided in that kind of report. You'll also be able to get introductory material on the mythological keynotes of the asteroids and Chiron, and also their main aspects to other celestial bodies at your birth. It's a tour de force kind of report. You can also, before even ordering it, see a sample of the former UK uh, Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. So we have samples of all the reports, including Skylog and Timeline and uh, Life Progressions, Just for Women. Um, there are so many other reports. We have a Child Star report for babies and young people. So it's worth a visit there. And it's a lot cheaper than going to a professional astrologer like myself or others which again can be very revealing if you want a fuller consultation with myself or others by telephone, learning much more uh, about your chart, that's available. And of course, uh, other astrologers that you might go to. But getting a report about the four main asteroids and Chiron, a lot of people just don't know what they're all about and this way you can learn about it. And plus on our website, um, there's an uh, uh, astro business key section. And even though it has the word business uh, in it, if you go to Great Bear Enterprises, you'll see Astro Business Keys and you can click there and a whole page will unfold with the sim uh, symbols for Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, the main planets, the four asteroids and Chiron. And you can read archetypes and themes and keynotes so that you start understanding more. And the reason you want to know this is you not only want to know your chart better and eventually what are called your transits and progressions or cycles for opportunities and cycles, but um, for those people um, in the uh, in getting the app, you can now have access one day at a time, not into the future, but the day itself. You can have for free the cosmic calendar that I've been doing now for 39 years of what's in the sky, new moons, full moons, where Venus is and Mars, um, new moons, quarter moons, eclipses, major planetary alignments. And these are a big part. A lot of people do not focus on the sky cycles. That's what I have been focusing on, not just for mundane and earth astrology, but to help people understand their birth charts. So knowing what's in the sky is another big part. If you're born, say, with moon trine Venus, uh, no matter what signs that those energies are in, or let's say you have Venus square Mars or any kind of Venus Mars alignment or solar lunar square or opposition, if those are happening in the sky, there is a resonance no matter what signs they're happening. So if you're born, for instance, at the first quarter moon, there are, first, there are 13 first quarter moons in a calendar year. Every, every time uh, the sun and moon are at first quarter or new moon or full moon or last quarter, if you're born at one of those phases and you don't know that it's happening, then you're missing out on an alignment that is affecting your life, your family's life, uh, loved one's life, and so on. But what people don't realize is that it's not just your own transits. It's not just your own chart. Just like we're seeing in the world, where a guy can go out and say, look, it's my life. I'm free to do whatever I want. If I want to die or if I die, so be it. And they don't realize, hey, they could be a super spreader. They could be affecting other people. They could even be giving it to their own family, their own child, their own parent. So having that attitude doesn't work. Same thing in astrology. Too many people are focused on their own chart, their own transits, their own progressions. That's not all there is. There's also the wider world of the ongoing cycles that are always happening in the sky. And as I've shared before, what people forget about is that each one of us, our own birth chart, 
frozen in time and space in a particular place, a particular time, whatever our charts are. And we, we tend to be very attached to our charts. If we get into astrology, we learn about it on our own. We go to an astrologer. However, we learn about it. And then we forget, guess what? At the moment that you were born in a place and a time, that was the cosmic calendar at that moment. We're all walking, living, breathing cosmic calendars. Everyone who's ever lived, anyone who will be living is a example of the cosmic calendar at work. And so as we interact with everyone else, as we get jobs or leave jobs or uh, take an oath to be president or uh, begin a business and inaugurate something or we get married or buy a house, whatever it is, every one of those moments is a cosmic calendar experience at that time and that place. And so when people think, why do I need the cosmic calendar? Why would that be important? You're just missing 50% of your own cycles. So I will explain it in greater depth, but if you go to the Great Bear website, we, there's a section on the cosmic calendar and you can read more about it. And again, through the new app uh, for any kind of phone or mobile device, astrology, cosmic calendar, calendar with a K, you can now have free access one day at a time. And for a very low price, truly, you can consider subscribing for a month, six months, or a year. And then you, if, you, if you're subscribing, particularly for a long, longer period of time, you then have access for the week ahead or two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead, which can, allows you to make plans and have meetings and so on. So um, without further ado, okay, so what we're going to do here is I'm going to go first to the, the Scorpio uh, or November 1993 issue to get the ball going here. But just before starting, and I need to tell you this, okay, the charts, I, well, I already explained, we're going to have the chart of Gregor Mendel, who is a monk um, back in, uh, who was born in 1822. I'll explain all about that. That chart, again, is on Great Bear Enterprises. There's the third of the three Uranus-Neptune conjunctions, which happened October 24th, 1993, approximately 4.09 p.m. in Washington, D.C. There's that chart. And let's see, there's also the chart for when I began these podcasts. And the reason that is important, and I may not get into all of that, but that was May 2nd, uh, 2019, around 10.30 in Oregon at night. And let me just mention about that. The reason that I'm providing that podcast is... Uh, that chart is it explains exactly why Eleanor Bach, one of the great teachers and astrologers who brought us the uh, asteroids in 1973, which nobody had ever brought to us. Turns out that the Pallas Athena position from May 2nd, 2019 is exactly her palace when she was born. And I didn't do the chart from, from May 2nd, 2019, which was the first podcast until recently because I didn't know it was going to be that significant what I was doing. And I didn't know I would actually be reading from Eleanor Bach. I had I had praised her and I had emphasized my connection. So I have, I probably won't be able to talk about it, but the reason I'm bringing this up is now with the 50th podcast and the other ones I'm gonna do, this is kind of the granddaddy or grandma uh, birthing chart of the podcast. So at least I'll put that out to the public. May 2nd, 2019, that was a short podcast of only about 30 some odd minutes. And you can go back, you should go back to the first 17, uh, May 2nd and onward, where the focus was on the progressed, what's called the secondary progressed sun for the United States chart from July 4th, 1776, in a conjunction with Pallas Athena by secondary progression. They came together, 
last year in this month. Um, I focused all these 17 podcasts about the time of the Mueller report and br bringing to your attention the power of Pallas Athena. That's what I'm doing again in part two, which we'll get to in a moment, of Eleanor Bach's uh, fantastic um, ability to communicate about El um, Pallas Athena. And again, so in her own birth chart, which I provide in podcast 48 and which is available in Great Bear Enterprises, you will see her own birth chart, which is available. And you'll see that she's born with Pallas Athena conjunct the North Node, a fate destiny point, which turns out to be the United States Saturn, uh, 14 of Libra. So that's not uh, an accident. That's not a coincidence. She, uh, Eleanor Bach, like myself, with my work with Welcome to Planet Earth, a pioneering newspaper and magazine for 20 years, 1980s and 1990s, I found a kindred spirit with the much older teacher, uh, Eleanor Bach, who uh, was also doing a newsletter called Planet Watch and created um, several books, of one of which I've quoted from before. And uh, she's just phenomenal. And so many people, um, the other astrologers, particularly women astrologers, but also male astrologers who have focused on not just the four main asteroids, but many other asteroids and what are called centaurs like Chiron and Chiriclo and others. We need to bow before or, or at least tip our caps uh, to Eleanor Bach. And I just feel so grateful and fortunate that I was able to be one of her students 47 years ago in, in lower Manhattan, that uh, the destiny, fate, destiny, whatever you want to call it, uh, brought me into her world. And even though she wasn't my main mentor, that was Dane Rudyard and some other astrologers. I did meet Dane Rudyard once uh, in the West Coast in California when he was quite a bit older, just before he passed away back uh, around, he, he died in 1985. Eleanor Bach uh, lived to until 1995, and I had sort of forgotten that she wrote eight or nine articles on the all four main asteroids right in the last year or two before she passed. Of course, no one knew she was going to pass uh, in 1995. And so uh, we've got this podcast uh, birthing chart. The what I want to say, we'll get into Gregor Mendel in a moment. Um, here's the other astounding thing, though. I hadn't realized, and then just know that I'm about to read from these articles. A week ago, when I was about to start doing all of this and I stopped short, um, I decided to look at the transits and cycles a little more closely to the third Uranus-Neptune con conjunction that happened October 24th, 1993. Part of the reason that this is all important and you might say, well, why is, he, why is he really doing this? Well, A, you're going to see from the articles about science versus religion that we shared in the magazine 26 to 27 years ago, we now have the same battle. Uh, we've, what, what we're seeing in our current president is also, um, if you understand history, the Crusades all over again, Christianity versus Islam. It's, it's so strong with this administration. It was also strong in the previous one. It was also strong under George Bush and Dick Cheney and battling uh, Saddam Hussein and battling Iran and so much history having to do with American imperialism and colonialism in that part of the world, as well as European colonialism and imperialism, you know, affecting Africa and the Middle East, going back to the 1800s and so on. So there's a lot of karma. There's a lot of dharma. And we're still dealing with the Crusades, okay? We're still dealing with Christi Christianity versus Islam, 
That's a big thing. And we're also dealing with the battle, which has a lot to do with what are called the seven rays, uh, lucistrust.org, I've mentioned before, the remarkable books um, of Alice A. Bailey, who is the channel for the Tibetan master DK. And I was fortunate enough to work there at, at Lucis Trust and Lucis Publishing and World Goodwill and Triangles, that organization in New York City near the United Nations before I went to Finhorn. And so I've mentioned them a lot because I still read those books and it's all important. But but here's the deal. On October 24, 1993, that Uranus-Neptune union was at 19 degrees of Capricorn. And we just had in January, when we didn't know the pandemic was really coming down the pike, affecting the whole world, so much, so many people in the field of mundane astrology were pointing to, particularly there was a full moon in January. And at that full moon, uh, I believe it's January 10th, and I've shared that um, material in our global hotspot area, another complimentary section on Great Bear Enterprises about new moons and full moons that I share every two weeks and just did another one on that. Back in January, January 10th, we had so many planets, including Mercury and Saturn and the Sun, um, at a, a full moon in Capricorn uh, with the moon in Cancer. And at that particular time, so many events were unfolding in Wuhan and that greater province that we didn't know about as the doctors were trying to figure out what is this thing and we're, we're trying to eventually um, figure it out and start the whole process of, of locking down the greater province and so on. Meanwhile, in the world, we had all of these alignments in Capricorn. But what we're forgetting about is that back 26 to 27 years ago, for the first time in 171 years, Uranus and Neptune merged together in Capricorn. And so the other thing, what I found was, is that, and this is highlighting the importance of Pallas Athena and Saturn, which are now together. So right now, for instance, you if you look in the cosmic calendar, if you read more about what I'm doing with the cosmic calendar, and if you go to, go to global hotspots for the latest um, uh, new moon energy in Gemini that has just happened, if you go back to the previous full moon, um, in Taurus and the previous new moon before that, you will see how Saturn has just moved into early Aquarius and now has stationed. And right now, particularly in the Gemini new moon global hotspot story, if you look at the chart, you'll see that Pallas Athena and Saturn are together in the beginning of Aquarius. Well, guess what? At the time that Uranus and Neptune came together in 1993 for the third time, Pallas made a station and turned direct two days before that, October 22nd, 1993, at 23 of Aquarius. And then Mercury stopped to go retrograde the day after Uranus and Neptune came together. And that was in Scorpio, making a square of 90 degrees, a 10th square to the Pallas station direct, Pallas Athena stationary direct. And then four days after Uranus and Neptune came together in 1993, Saturn stopped. So what we have actually, this is far more significant because of the same thing is happening now. Pallas Athena is in the beginning of Aquarius. Saturn is in the beginning of Aquarius. Both of those just stationed to go retrograde. The Saturn station just happened on Sunday, May 10th. The Pallas Athena station just happened May 17th. Today is May 27th. Because when planets station, they don't go very far. The research I did back a week ago when I redid the Uranus-Neptune conjunction and going back to these magazine stories from 27 years ago, and there's another big reason why I'm doing this, which I'll explain in a moment, and then we'll get on to the, to the heart center of this particular 
uh, podcast. So what I'm saying to you is, as I've shared before, when planets are stationary, celestial bodies are stationary, their power for good or ill, their ability to affect all our lives become magnified. When I started learning astrology 47 years ago, and my main teacher through his books was Dane Rudyard, who is one of the great astrologers, along with Dr. Mark Edmund Jones, Charles Carter, Evangeline Adams, Alan Leo, Eleanor Box, so many other people um, that I studied at that particular time. Uh, Dane Rudger would talk about the power of a station um, in different people's charts. He was talking about different world leaders and uh, times in history and so on. And so that sort of embedded uh, in my consciousness. And, and the reason why he became my mentor, just so you know, eventually I'll do more of an autobiographical series of podcasts about how I got more into all this is turned out that when Dane Rudger was born in, uh, let's see, I don't want to say the wrong year. He was born 18... 95 and he died 1985 he lived to be 90 sun sign aries and his mercury in pisces and when i saw his chart after i read one book and uh, this came from samuel weiser bookstore in lower manhattan one of the great bookstores i mentioned before it doesn't exist anymore but back in the in the 70s when i got into astrology it was an extraordinary place for metaphysics on the highest and deepest levels and i met a uh, a guy in the the astrology section was not that big at that point. Uh, Clark Stillman, and uh, he guided me. He said, well, you got to read Rudyard. You got to read Dr. Jones. They're sort of connected together in history. And here's books by Alan Leo, and there's Evangeline Adams, and there's this British astrologer, Charles Carter. And he and I kept going back and back. But what I learned was Dane Rudyard's Mercury, so that his ability to use language and communication is at five plus five degrees of Pisces. That's where my Mercury was. And so I'd already started reading him. And as I started reading his book, it was as if I was having almost like a telepathic, it was like every sentence, every paragraph. Um, and I didn't know at that point what his birth chart was. And so I recommend to everyone, you, if whoever your astrologer has been, uh, whether it's me or it's been somebody else, find out what your connection is, when were they born? Or if you've been a person who's been reading from different astrologers, see if you could locate their month, day, year of birth at the very least and see how their chart compares to your chart, which will help you to understand why that person, that astrologer and those person's books or teachings or the conferences you went to, why that person and you are simpatico. There's a reason. There's always going to be planetary connections between you and your mentors and teachers, and I would not just astrologers, but musicians and artists and uh, literary folks, whoever has inspired you, if you can look them up, or a historical figure, a world figure, whoever it may be, try and get their birth information. If you're into astrology, compare the charts. So the other reason, so, so what we have here is that two other things. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, remember, Bill Clinton became president in 1993, and that was the year of the three Uranus-Neptune conjunctions. And what I knew that Hillary Clinton, because I, I was publishing the magazine at that time, she was put in charge of health care. And this was then foiled by the likes of Newt Gingrich and the Republicans that came in in 1994 in Congress, in the House in particular, and it was a whole disaster of President Clinton putting his wife, Hillary Clinton, into the role that she really enjoyed or wanted of health care. So the, the whole thing of Obamacare came 
way later. And the whole situation recently of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren talking about universal health care and increasing Medicare and Medicaid and so on, as I shared before, uh, just it's remarkable to think two plus months ago, two to three months ago, when Bernie Sanders was still running against Joe Biden and within the Democratic Party itself and from the Republicans, everyone was saying, uh, in fact, President um, Bush, excuse me, President, um, our own president now, President Trump actually has these names for people like Crazy Bernie, or he used Pocahontas as a terrible uh, defaming um, of Elizabeth Warren. But the fact that they would say, it's impossible, we can't spend trillions of dollars, it's, we can't go into great debt as a country to do things like universal health care or increase health care. And, and look at what we're doing. Already it's trillions of dollars, the Federal Reserve, in just the first wave. So many trillions of dollars, six trillion dollars. And there's going to have to be other waves. And right now the government is, uh, particularly Mitch McConnell and leadership, are balking about providing more money for states and municipal governments. And this is going to be very crucial. Mitch McConnell, we know, has already said, recently, not so long ago, let the states just go bankrupt. This is kind of like goes back to the um, let them eat cake. This is going back to uh, the elites at the time of the French Revolution. And there is so much of the 1% versus the 99% that's being exposed now. And I shared before, um, the, the reason, well, let me put it this way. If you go to the Wikipedia, and this is what stopped me from doing this a week ago, I read through the entire Wikipedia about Hillary Clinton and healthcare. I suggest that you go to Google, Safari, whatever, put in Hillary Clinton and healthcare, and then you'll have this whole thing, the debacle that happened, and how healthcare was knocked off. It never happened under Hillary. It, it created a whole wave of Republican um, energy coming in the following year in the midterm elections. And this is what created so much havoc. And then the, the, the situation kind of repeated itself uh, with President Obama, because we have Obamacare, even though it was uh, the Affordable Care Act and then nicknamed Obamacare, it turned out that then he lost power um, two years later. And Nancy Pelosi, back in 2010, lost her speakership, which she only got back eight years later, two years ago. And so we get these cycles. This is part of the uh, it's kind of more of the karma and the dharma uh, as Isaac Newton, who was into astrology, Sir Isaac Newton, had the second law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And based on astrology and time cycles, we can often find these things. So um, it turns out, and this is amazing, Bill Clinton, I, I wrote about this a long time ago in Welcome Planet Earth. He's born at a palace Athena station direct. Um, which happened the day after he was born. And he has Pallas Athena, in other words, motionless and extra strong, uh, at 28 degrees of Sagittarius. And Hillary Clinton, born uh, in October of 1947, is also born with Pallas stationary direct, just after her birth, three days, where her Pallas Athena is conjunct, the Pallas Athena moon conjunction in the United States birth chart. By the way, Pallas Athena is not only connected to knowledge and wisdom and problem solving and strategizing, and justice and protecting um, our voting systems um, and so many other factors. Of course, our focus here is on Pallas Athena and the immune system in particular in, in, in podcast 48 and now in podcast 50. But I wanted to alert you to the fact that we now know that at the time of the last um, 
Uranus-Neptune conjunction, which I'll be reading from, it's not just the Uranus-Neptune conjunction, which is significant because it's so rare, only on uh, every 171 years. It was in Capricorn, and we're now having Saturn in Capricorn, we have Pluto in Capricorn, Jupiter in Capricorn, Pallas Athena is retrograding back into Capricorn, Saturn is retrograding back into Capricorn. And so this is triggering the Uranus-Neptune conjunctions from when Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton with both of their Pallas Athena stations at birth. And remember, attorneys and people who are working in the field of law and justice, that's also connected to Pallas Athena. Now, there can be a negative side to this too. It's not that just because Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have Pallas Athena stations that everything they did was correct. There were lawsuits there. We know that Bill Clinton was, President Clinton was impeached. And he, he just like President Trump and President uh, Johnson after uh, President Lincoln was assassinated, we have had three times where presidents have been impeached by the House, but they've never been thrown out of office by the Senate. With President Nixon, he resigned, so he never went through an impeachment because the senators, Barry Goldwater and others, on the Republican side went to Dick Nixon said, it's over, you're going to get impeached. So he resigned. Uh, as terrible as the whole thing of Watergate was and the lies and the cover-ups at that time, at least the president had the decency to know that when the truth came out about the tapes and, and the cover-ups and everything else, he resigned. So that is not something that our current president would ever consider doing. Instead, what we're going to see here is a very dreadful situation that is going to get more and more extreme. So now you know uh, the rest of the story. That was a, a key line from uh, a great reporter, and hopefully I'll remember his, his name later. Uh, Paul Harvey, there it is, came up in my mind. Uh, a great, uh, he's no, long, no, no longer live, but he used to be on the radio, and you'd hear these stories, and he was such a character and at the end, he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. And that was Paul Harvey. In many ways, he came from the central part of the United States and um, was a fantastic reporter and conservative. Uh, okay, so what we're going to do here is I'm going to go first to the Scorpio magazine. You'll see that cover, which has a Dow-like symbol, the 19 degrees of Capricorn. You'll see the date, October 24, 1993. You'll see Neptune, the trident figure in black lettering, Uranus, uh, which looks like a letter H with a, a cross going down a little circle in white, and you see the kind of dance of the Dow symbol. That's what we came up with at, at that time. So um, this article was entitled Uranus Conjunct Neptune Part 1. And uh, I'm just looking here. Okay, we've gone for a little over an hour. So that was our introduction. And I think I was able to give you some of the key pointers of the stories coming recently. So here we go. Um, the importance of Uranus and Neptune. Remember that there were three uh, cycles back in 1993. But now you know that healthcare and the failure of healthcare happened back in 1993 when there were three Uranus-Neptune conjunctions in Capricorn, the same area of the Zodiac, which we're now dealing with, with the pandemic and all the other things. And let's not forget also, when the year started, and there is a podcast on this, do you remember when we attacked um, Iran, we killed their major general, Soleimani, who was actually the equivalent of, of one of our, if 
if we had a situation where Saddam Hussein had decided to strike at Colin Powell, let's say during the first Gulf War and taken out one of our generals, well, then George Bush, number one, would have marched in uh, to Baghdad and removed Saddam Hussein had he done that. But that's not what happened. In this case, the first week of January of this year, when we didn't know a pandemic was happening, as 2020 began, we almost had a hot war in the Middle East. And that's why I said we still have the Crusades happening. There are all these reasons that are very, very troubling because we, the United States, through our Central Intelligence Agency, overthrew their naturally elected leader, uh, Mohammed Mossadegh, back in 1953. We then installed the Shah of Iran for 26 years. And it was during the Carter administration that the Shah, who was sick with cancer, came to New York City because President Carter um, at that time decided in the late part of 1978 to allow uh, the Shah to come over to be treated at a major hospital. And it was right after that that the Ayatollah um, Khomeini came out of exile from France. And that's when revolutionary uh, uh, Iran got its life force in the beginning of 1979. I've shared that particular chart. I believe it's in the podcast. It's definitely in a lot of the articles I've wrote, written about in Welcome to Planet Earth and over the years. So that goes back to 1979. We are the people, the United States, at that point through our Central Intelligence Agency and all kinds of colonial imperialism because we wanted to install somebody in 1953. Then we put the Shah in. He had a secret police. It, it was a terrible time for Iran over almost more than a quarter of a century that we know nothing about or we don't care about. And then we wind up having um, a religious uh, extremism at, in terms of their government. And now the current president uh, gets rid of the nuclear agreement and makes them into an enemy. And we should be at this point, regardless of the fact that um, they have all kinds of issues with terrorism, we should have stuck with the nuclear agreement that the Europeans are still working with. And now we have a situation where they have been struck by the pandemic as well. But the year started where we almost got into a fighting war at that point and almost in a remarkable way and through the pandemic, as terrible as the pandemic is, we've moved away from what might have been nuclear missiles and other kinds of things that would have been uh, another unleashing of things. And in a way, the pandemic is a reminder to all of us that we need to prepare much more um, for working as a planet as a whole. And we can't have these rivalries anymore. But whether we're going to learn that lesson or not, I mean, the time is getting short, whether it's climate change or nuclear weapons and all of these rivalries that have gone on for thousands of years. I mean, we just can't keep doing this. I'm not saying this as an idealist. I'm just saying as time goes on, something is going to happen with a nuclear weapon somewhere if we're not careful or there'll be an accident. Um, and we may not know what's happening. And because of having all kinds of nuclear weapons and pollution and other things, and the, the problems of climate change and not preparing for pandemics, I mean, we're definitely on the, the razor's edge here. So I'm just gonna read this, this first one. This is gonna take a while to go through um, three major stories from two magazines, but here's the first one. Uranus Conjunct Neptune, part one. Um, Note, please reread the Pisces 1993 cover story on the first Uranus-Neptune conjunction. Well, obviously, I'm not going to do that. From February 2nd, 1993, and its connection with the electromagnetic energy scare, This that feature is essential as part of your comprehensive understanding of the final one. Well, you're just going to have to tune in without that understanding until I 
read from that particular magazine. Okay, then subtitle, it's finally here. After 171 years and a final nine-month pregnancy cycle since February 1993, um, humanity has the opportunity to experience a Uranus-Neptune conjunction in which both planets are known and have even been photographed. Uranus in 1986 and Neptune in 1989 by Voyager 2. Close up due to our technological and revolutionary advances of the past 171 years. What will happen in and around conjunction time on October 24, 1993? Where is the world headed over the next few months and years? What impact will Uranus Neptune together have for yourself, family members, friends, colleagues, groups, nations, humanity, and the world? In this issue, we will offer you some food for thought. In succeeding months, we will bring you Uranus Neptune updates. Even as we go to press, October 13 and 14, 1993, the largest corporate merger in history may be occurring with Bell Atlantic Company poised to buy both Telecommunications Incorporated and its cable programming company. The deal itself might total $33 billion, and the merger would create a gigantic business with $60 billion in assets. The merger is a perfect example of the current wedding of Uranus and Neptune. Why? Uranus is affiliated with radio, telephones, clear audience, ESP, and invisible wavelengths. Neptune is associated with television, cable TV, clairvoyance, visualization, imagination, and pictorial means of communication. Bell Atlantic, a telephone giant, is synonymous with Uranus, while telecommunications, the nation's biggest uh, cable enterprise, is totally linked to Neptune. By the way, I'm going to add this right now, Bell Atlantic uh, telecommunications, we don't even have these names anymore, so time has changed so many things. And back to the storyline. So this merger, like the Israeli-Palestinian Accord discussed last month, is a perfect example of the unification of Uranus and Neptune and the resulting ramifications throughout society, Ura- uh, Russia and Uranus-Neptune. Before offering the food for thought mentioned above, it is important to recognize that the recent turmoil and revolutionary struggles in Russia have direct links to the Uranus-Neptune conjunctions. The originating point of the past 171-year Uranus-Neptune cycle occurred three times in 1821, with conjunctions at 2 degrees and 3 degrees of Capricorn. The birth of the Soviet Union, November 8th and 9th, 1917, revealed the fateful Moon's North Node at 2 plus Capricorn, conjunct transiting Venus. At the dissolution of the Soviet Union and rebirth of modern Russia, December 25, 1991, 5.45 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time in Moscow, we find the sun, life force, vitality, heart and soul, central power at three of Capricorn. Amazingly, there were 11, count them, oppositions between Uranus and Neptune some 83 to 87 years ago, 1906 to 1910. These full moon type illuminating and polarizing oppositions energized the zodiacal area from 8 degrees to 22 degrees of Cancer Capricorn. As Uranus entered Capricorn in early 1905 and started opposing Neptune and Cancer, the Tsar's soldiers fired on workers and strikers in St. Petersburg, creating a mini revolution and bloodbath. The calamity eventually led to the creation of a Duma. Russia's first parliament, which opened in May 1906, precisely during a Uranus-Neptune polarity at 8 plus Cancer and Capricorn. The incident between the Tsar, his troops, and the workers 
in January 1905 has an eerie reflection in the recent acts by Boris Yeltsin, the insurrection at the Russian Congress and the violence on October 3rd and 4th of 1993, with Uranus and Neptune now together. Remember that Uranus, representing democracy, freedom, and capitalism, and Neptune, socialism, collectivism, and communism, and Capricorn, representing law and order, limits, authoritarian rule, are in a symbolic and literal war for the hearts and souls of the Russian people right now. It will be fascinating to watch their struggle unfold in the weeks and months to come. Note, and this is important, I'm adding now, but this is what I wrote back in 1993. Neptune is not just Neptune these days, because it is really the outermost planet of the solar system from 1979 to 1999. It is absorbing plutonic vibrations, transformative power, will and potentially destructive energies normally reserved to Pluto and its secret domain. Keep this in mind as Uranus and Neptune unite. Now, one point of order. I wrote a series of articles called The Forgotten Cycle. Every 400 plus years, which is the, the, the conjunctions of Neptune and Pluto, in 20 years, in 20 year uh, t time periods, Pluto uh, moves closer to the Earth and the Sun than Neptune, and Neptune becomes the outermost planet in terms of the main planets. This doesn't have anything to do with Sedna and Eris and other planets we've now discovered beyond Pluto. But there's this unusual thing because of the structure of the solar system, and I wrote a series of articles. That's why I gave this point where I said Neptune is not just Neptune because it is really the outermost planet of the solar system, 1979 to 1999. It is absorbing plutonic vibrations, transmorphic power, will, and potentially destructive energies normally reserved to Pluto in its secret domain. Keep this in mind as Uranus and Neptune unite. And by the way, both George Washington, well, George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, those three people who became president, the first three presidents, were all born when Neptune was the outermost planet and Pluto moved closer to the Earth and the Sun. So that's very interesting. Also, the time of Jesus when he was born. Um, there are many other cycles, and I wrote about this in The Forgotten Cycle. When Jesus was born, that also was occurring, a 20-year cycle, where Neptune was the outermost planet and Pluto had moved closer. So they're very, very powerful and unusual cycles. It has a lot to do with revolutionary um, uh, Iran being created at the beginning point in early 1979. Those events are not accidental, they're not coincidental, they're synchronistic, they're part of destiny and fate for planet Earth. Okay, back to the story, oddities. Last month we saw that Yitzhak Rabin, born with a Sun-Uranus conjunction, and Yasser Arafat, born with a Sun-Neptune conjunction, be became a central and important part of the Uranus-Neptune unification. Their September 13, 1993 agreement, allowing the Palestinians to recognize Israel and paving the way for Israel to allow pa Palestinians to govern themselves is not just a revolutionary political happening, but it is also a spiritual crossroads for humanity. Now think how I'm adding this now. We know that there are problems in the Middle East with Benjamin Netanyahu and their government. In fact, he's on trial right now, and he's been very close to, to uh, President Trump. And so it's very interesting because there was a stalemate in the, election, in the election between him and his rival. And apparently Benjamin Netanyahu is remaining in power for the next year and a half. Of course, President Trump wants to be like his friend Benjamin Netanyahu. They have a lot of 
astrology connections between their charts as well, particularly the planet Mars. And But the irony is that what was happening with Yitzhak Rabin, Sun Conjunct Uranus, back in 1993 at his birth, and Yasser Arafat, uh, they're both long gone, with Sun Conjunct Neptune, they actually came to an agreement with uh, President Clinton. And this was following a previous agreement under the Carter administration of another Middle East connection between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. And they're both gone. And of course, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. But that was an agreement that was part of the Camp David Accords under President Carter. Uh, that was back in 1978, I think it was. So a year into uh, President Carter's administration, that was one of the key triumphs that he had at that point before he was ousted by President Reagan. And so here in the first year of the Clinton administration, he fails with health care. And we see the ramifications of that failure right now, uh, where Hillary, Hillary Clinton was the as much as she knew about it, it just didn't go over the public. Public wasn't open to Hillary Clinton as the first lady doing that. The Republicans came in. However, however, in September 1993, just a month before the last Uranus-Neptune conjunction, what are the odds that the Israeli leader would be born with Sun Conjunct Uranus and the leader of the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat, would have Sun Conjunct Neptune? This, what I'm saying is I'm writing this story. These are real people with these with these alignments. And so going back to the story, I mean, this is just so ironic that Israel and Palestine are still at war with each other. They still have not resolved this, even though there were these agreements that were created during these opportune time periods. So back to the story here. Uh, there's September 13, 1993 agreement allowing the Palestinians to recognize Israel, paving the way for Israel to allow Palestinians to govern themselves is not just a revolutionary political happening, but it is also a spiritual crossroads for humanity. And then I wrote, if Israel and the Palestinians can unite in synchronicity with Uranus and Neptune, their celestial ambassadors and overseers, in the former quote-unquote holy land, then many other significant mergers, unions, and rapports can occur, which until recently seemed impossible. Thus the promise of the Uranus-Neptune rendezvous in the weeks and months ahead has awesome repercussions. Food for thought. Please meditate on this list of Uranus-Neptune themes, parallels, people, and issues as the Uranus-Neptune conjunction occurs during the weekend of October 23rd, 24th, 1993. Remember to note wherever 18 and a half degrees of Capricorn shows up in your natal chart, that area is Uranianized and Neptunianized for the next 171 years! Exclamation point. It will be a place by house and aspect of extraordinary spiritual power, electromagnetic vitality, and revolutionary vision for the future. Okay, now I have a list here, and I'll just read it. These were all in bold. A Uranus column and a Neptune column. So under the Uranus, and I'll go back and forth. Uranus, left brain. Neptune, right brain. Uranus line, USA. Neptune line, Russia, USSR. Uranus line, Clinton. Neptune line, Yeltsin. Uranus line, um, President Clinton having Uranus on his own lunar node. And Yeltsin his son on the Neptune heliocentric node, under the Uranus line, higher male energy, under the Neptune line, higher female energy, under Uranus yang, under Neptune yin, under Uranus science, under Neptune religion, under Uranus west, under Neptune east, Uranus line individual, Neptune line state, Uranus line democracy, Neptune line socialism and communism, Uranus line revolution, 
Neptune line, transubstantiation. Uranus line, freedom. Neptune line, bondage, hooked, and addiction. Now, I'm just going to turn the page here to get to the other part. We're nearing the end of, of this particular article, by the way, but continuing on the Uranus line, instability on the Neptune line, chaos, confusion. The Uranus line, Aquarian age. Neptune line, Piscean age. The Uranus line, Mercury's higher octave. Neptune's line, Venus higher octave. Under the Uranus line, astrology. Under the Neptune line, Tarot. Under the Uranus line, clear audience. And the Neptune line, clairvoyance. Under the Uranus line, radio. On the Neptune line, television. And the last two words, under the Uranus line, electricity. Uh, and the Neptune line, magnetism. And then I wrote, uh, prepare for January 11, 1994. And I won't go into all of that, but I, uh, in that paragraph, I said there are more keynotes for the list, but you'll get the picture from what has been presented. Many individuals may be feeling high as a kite and very spiritually invigorated now and in the near future because of the union of Uranus and Neptune. If you're becoming more psychic and intuitive, open to dreams and visions and feeling a new wave of divine madness or genius, do not be alarmed. It is just the dance of Uranus and Neptune weaving its magic on you. And then I wrote, before closing this time, remember the following. The Uranus-Neptune merger occurs at 18 plus Capricorn in the second decanate or 10 degree division of this last Earth sign of the Zodiac. For decanate watchers, this means the Taurus decanate of the sign G, uh, Capricorn is energized. And this implies revolutionary and transformative ramifications in world economics banking, insurance plans, investment strategies, stock and bond markets, commodity markets, gold and silver trading and the like. Expect monumental changes in these areas over the next few weeks, months and years with a tremendous amount of restructuring, realigning, breaking down and building up. And by the way, I actually did write about the Mercury station going in retrograde. I wrote uh, toward the end of this article because Mercury goes into reverse motion October 25, 1993, just one day after Uranus unites with Neptune, it may not be that easy to move forward with dynamic energies of Uranus and Neptune in late October and early November. From November 15 onward, Mercury will be direct in motion until February 11, 1994. So that three-month period will see the birth and inauguration of many new organizations, groups, centers, communities, businesses, enterprises. Uh, I... I'm not going to read the rest. It's just a couple of things. And I offered everybody many blessings uh, into the future. So that is the end of that particular story. And that chart is given out, just so you know. There, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of analysis, but that chart is provided, okay, so that you can take a look. And that chart is for Washington, D.C., uh, whereas a chart for the same Uranus-Neptune conjunction, other, other capitals of the world would look different. The same signs would be accurate, but what's rising, setting above and below would be different. Now, the following issue is where you'll see the cloning question, and this is really important because I'm going to read two articles from here as long as my voice continues, and I do, I am going to do this no matter what. Um, this kind of lengthy amount here. So imagine you're on this plane going to Hawaii again, and you know, you're still up in the air. And now maybe there was a break, uh, as I'm sharing now. And now in the next issue, and if you go to the Great Bear Enterprise website, you're going to see this really amazing cover uh, on the top of the Sagittarius 1993 issue. We have the quote from JFK 
whose presidency I was, I was uh, 10, about to be 11. It changed my life, uh, both good and, uh, and awful because of his assassination. And we have his great quote, uh, and the glow from that fire can truly light the world. J. John F. Kennedy, January 20th, 1961. That's at the top of our magazine from now 27, 26 and a half years ago, Sagittarius 1993. Then you'll see the, the, the cloning question with two embryos and a question mark, and then the subtitle at the bottom. And this is why I'm reading from this. This is so essential because we're in the, when we were looking at the medical uh, issues and we see Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and all the different medical professions and people saying, you got to wear a mask six feet apart. Um, we've, we need to get the vaccine, which again, I mentioned in the previous uh, podcast 48, Pallas Athena is connected to the immune system. You want to go back to that podcast um, for the, my readings from that uh, uh, Eleanor Bach article, which we'll get to shortly. We'll get to part two of it. And part one was in podcast 40, 48. And it was toward the end of that podcast and toward the end of my reading from Eleanor Bach, where she gets into uh, the immune system and Pallas Athena. And again, remember, the United States does not have a moon alone in Aquarius. It has the moon exactly at the same degree with Pallas Athena. And no matter where your moon is, no matter where what your chart is all about, you, if you're an American and if you're elsewhere and America is affecting your lives as it affects so many countries and people around the world, this is why learning about charts of nations and world leaders is so important. And uh, I want to say one other thing here. Again, um, there are people who don't like what I'm doing. Um, some some people who have been my subscribers, some people who have heard me on Coast to Coast, um, they think I'm unfairly treating the President of the United States as well as the whole administration. Um, what they don't realize is in mundane or earth astrology, if you go back to Charles Carter, who did so much, um, so many studies, and, and the same thing with Dane Rudger, Dr. Mark Edmund Jones, and others, who focused on world events and when Hitler and the Nazis were fighting uh, against the British Battle of Britain and so on. There's a whole area of political astrology. It, it's its own field. So whether we call it political astrology um, and the wider field of mundane or earth astrology, um, and I've studied Hitler's chart backwards and forwards and so many other leaders, Mussolini's chart and Xi in China and Putin and Stalin and Lenin, and we could go through the whole list and American presidents, you know, over and over again and Democratic presidents and Republican presidents and the good and the bad and the high and the low. Um, but the important thing is, again, a president has, takes an oath of office. So what a, what a person does before they're president and after they're president, they're a citizen on their own, whatever they do, okay, that's their own life, their own world, whether it's positive, negative, fantastically great or terrible to whatever people. But when you, when you take an oath of office of any kind, whether it's to be a president or a position in a job or the CEO of a company or whatever position where you are in charge of something, of whatever your responsibilities or your work, you know, in order to do your work well, and you take pride in doing that, you, the whole thing is to do your job, you know, do your job as best as possible on behalf of everyone, particularly in the United States, not for one group, not for 43 out of every 100 people or 43%. Of the country, you got to be able to bring together everyone um, together, 
as best as you can. So um, that has not been happening the last several years. And it's certainly, uh, the, the problem is, if you have eyes to see and just watching the news and tuning into what's going on here with the struggle, particularly medicine, which is another way of looking at science versus religion, the whole thing of what a person personally believes, as I gave the example of the guy on TV who said, hey, it's my life. I'm free to do whatever I want. If, I want, if I'm going to die from all this, then so be it. No, that's not it. <laughs> that's not what this country or what our lives are all about. It's that we have families. That guy on TV had parents at some point, whether they're alive or not. Maybe his children, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he has friends. I mean, how a person can even say that and not understand the horror of what they're saying, and that that's multiplied, as we can see, by people going out with masks, not social distancing, not caring, you know, eat, drink, and be married. Tomorrow we might die. What it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go out and enjoy myself, you know, because I feel fine and hopefully I don't have anything. And then we just see there are so many super spreaders and events, choir practices, people attending church, not social distancing or being in a synagogue or being in a mosque or going to a pool party or a bar or a tattoo parlor or wherever it is and just not going by rules and then saying, well, the president of the United States isn't wearing a mask. So why should I, you know, I don't need to wear a mask if the leader of the country isn't wearing a mask. So we've got all of these divisions and it's now become very political. And it's really a horror story um, of what can happen because again, with the Spanish influenza, which is probably the main um, uh, destructive, discordant uh, pandemic that it, that we can compare this to a hundred years ago. The difference is that we didn't have the science, we didn't have the medicine that we now have. And if we're going to start making the same mistakes, because the wave that came back, the second wave of that was far more deadly than the first wave. And exactly what is going on now with coming out for parties, Memorial Day, it's summertime, it's warm. This is exactly what happened uh, more or less in the cities in the United States, even though um, the war was still going on in Europe. And then uh, people letting down their guard is what led to the horrific fall and winter when the war actually ended, the First World War in 1918 in Europe, that famous November 11, 11, 11, uh, 1918, you know, which sort of sealed the deal for the rise of Nazi Germany, the Vers their Versailles Treaty. And I just watched the whole show on that, which was very interesting from Memorial Day on the History Channel. A lot of people I, I read about, they said, oh, the, the, they're leaving out too many different actors and stories. But I watched it for a while. And it was very interesting because I've studied Hitler's chart going back to the crowning of Charlemagne in the year 800, Christmas Day in Rome, and how uh, a person like Hitler connected to so many events the Versailles Treaty, the start of World War One, the fact that he was a corporal, he was gassed um, uh, by the chlorine gas in the First World War. The Versailles Treaty was so destructive against Germany, and he never forgot that. So when he came into power, everything that he wanted to do, as it was shown in the history show over the weekend, was he just wanted to pulverize uh, the French and the British and um, the allies and show them that Germany was not going to be treated like that. So that's we, why he envisioned the 1,000-year Reich. And then he made the same exact mistake that Napoleon made as an emperor fighting against Russia. It's, a, it's an unbelievable story, again, of karma and dharma and of people um, 
tuning into things. By the way, this connects up to this whole idea in astrology, mundane astrology, of leaders like Napoleon, who was born with Saturn overhead in the 10th house. And there's a whole um, kind of tradition of war leaders. If, if Saturn is elevated at the, the birth of that person, they often have a great rise and a spectacular fall. This hit, uh, Napoleon was born with Saturn above. He fell into this trap and eventually uh, went from emperor, emperor to being um, isolated on Elba and having an ignominious end to his life um, after being an, uh, declared emperor. And then Hitler, the thousand-year Reich, winds up having his uh, non-aggression pact uh, seven days before World War II started with, with Stalin. And then they carve up Poland and then Two years later, less than slightly less than two years later, he declares war in Russia, makes the same mistake that um, that Napoleon made. And again, Hitler has a stationary Saturn at top of his chart. And we get into so many other things that that uh, of these mistakes were made. And that is the reminder that both John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, who were so close together in terms of coming into Congress in 1947, they're born four years apart, 1913 for Nixon, 1917 for JFK. They both wind up being in the Navy. They both, they were, they, they had a lot of connections together, even though we have the more, um, you know, the democratic liberal, more liberal leaning uh, in general, JFK versus the more conservative Nixon, who then becomes vice president under, under Eisenhower. And then they battle it out in 1960. And uh, of course, uh, it's a close election. JFK wins and then um, he's assassinated. But their their rise to power is very interesting. And both had Saturn at the top of the chart. And uh, there was a total solar eclipse in the summer of 1963. It was exactly on JFK's son, his, his Saturn, excuse me, at the top of his chart exactly. I've studied that chart. And again, in my uh, School of Planetary studies, 36 classes, one hour classes that are now digital on the website. You should look into that because we're also having a special now and putting it on sale. My daughter has put this together. It was originally on tape cassettes for um, a group of students back in from 1985 to 1987. So they were on tape cassette with, with lesson notes and charts. It's called the School of Planetary Studies. And it's all these great teachers and astrologers I put together in 36 one-hour audio classes, and then they became CDs, and now they're digital through MP3 files, and you can download the whole thing, or the beginner series, the intermediate series, and the advanced series as each one in, in separate 12 full groups, and learn astrology, particularly for many of you who've always wanted to learn astrology, and this brings together my synthesizing these great astrologers, men and women, who have changed the world of astrology, particularly the astrologers over the last 100 to 200 years, and it's, it's, it's a very tour de force uh, between um, auditory learning and lesson notes and charts. So at any rate, that's a little bit of plug for that, but we're now making it a lot more um, uh, readily available by lowering prices and making it easier to download and those kind of things. So that was a little bit I just wanted to share because we've had this battle before. I think part of the reason I broke this up is the science religion uh, question in this article that I'm about to read that I wrote about the cloning question goes back to uh, right after the Uranus-Neptune conjunction, and you'll you'll hear me um, read from this article. But what I forgot to share in the upfront section is this: as President Trump came out with his almost demand to open up churches and synagogues and mosques in that three-minute um, discussion, or 
he came into the press room of the White House and read this thing and just walked off. I mean, it was it was pretty extraordinary. And he was angry. He was angry because he wants every, the church. Remember the whole thing about April 12th? He wanted everybody in the churches. At that point, it wasn't synagogues. It was a mosque. He said, oh, it'd be so beautiful. This was at the end of March when he said, we could just have all the churches open on Easter. You know, at that point, he was still saying, it's going to all go away. You know, you'll see it'll decrease. That was in March. But then he, he realized, wait a minute, he spoke too soon. There's no way. The doctor said we cannot have all the churches opening. So because he was, you know, the president doesn't want to ever be, uh, in, no, he doesn't want anyone disagreeing with him. If somebody disagrees with him, he finds some way to put them down or make them feel weak or call them a name or whatever it is, um, which is, I mean, we know that this is his personality and even his supporters say, well, that's just him, whatever, and make excuses for him. Nevertheless, it is very dangerous to see that because now we see with not wearing the mask, we've got all these people, whether men, women, particularly younger people who, who feel they're immune or don't even know what it means to be asymptomatic and don't care. And they could be spreading this around at parties and going to bars and doing all kinds of things. And that's exactly what happened uh, um, 102 years ago with the Spanish flu. And it's also what happened 600 plus years ago with the bubonic plague and the black plague. And it revolutionized Europe. This is the thing and I read a lot about it and I've read other people's articles and so on. And it came back in waves in different cities and different countries over many years. And not just a year later or two years later, in some cases like five years later, 10 years later, suddenly it was coming up again because it had never been eliminated. And that was the Black Plague, the bubonic plague. And uh, people kept moving, trying to escape from it because they thought it was some kind of thing from God or the devil or whatever it might be. They didn't understand medicine. They didn't understand germs. They didn't understand bacteria. They didn't understand viruses and these different things. They knew nothing about it. So they all had to think it was coming from the devil or some kind of terrible location or some kind of plague. And they, particularly the wealthier people would just move as far away as they could. And what would happen is they would bring the, the, the problem, the pandemic to that other area and then it would settle in and then it would spread out. Those people would keep moving, trying to get away from that place, thinking it's the place, it's the water, it's the air, it's bad people, it's Jewish people, it's whatever it is. It's like now, again, all these different people would be blamed and so on. And it created a revolution in terms of the feudal society, manners and who the lords and the uh, the ladies who are running different areas and the, the, the workers and the serfs and the people who are working under them. And literally over 100 to 200 years, it changed the whole face of Europe. And that's why, just like um, it's, it's forgotten how much, how many people lost their lives, many more people lost their lives from the uh, Spanish influenza at the end of World War I than the people who died during the war, as terrible as that war was, which led to World War II. So, uh, and of course, we've had different plagues and different bird flus and Ebola scares and other you know, yellow fever and cholera and tuberculosis. And these things are still ongoing all over the planet, measles outbreaks, um, other kinds of uh, pandemics that are, and other ones that could be following. So here we go. Um, this is kind of brings this whole subject matter to the heart and soul. And again, this follows uh, a short time after the October 24th conjunction of Uranus and Neptune. So it's called the cloning question. 
And here we go. When Uranus and Neptune converge for the final time in 171 years, on October 24th, 1993, they did so with a bang, not a whimper. However, if you are not paying attention to all the news stories, you might have missed one of the most amazing astrologically related stories in decades. <clears throat> Here's what happened, what it means, and my own personal process in ferreting out the secret <clears throat> nuances of the subject. Uh, I'm going to pause there for a second to have a little bit of water. Okay, here we go. So Sunday, <clears throat> October 24th, 1993. The New York Times on its front page, this is literally, I'm just adding now, the day of the conjunction, the third and final conjunction. Sunday, October 24th, 1993. The New York Times on its front page reports that a researcher clones embryos of human infertility effort. This was the title of an article by Gina Colada with subtitles reading, quote, tough ethical challenge um, and no technical breakthrough. Parents could get identical twins bo born years apart, unquote. In essence, scientists at George Washington University Medical Center had split a fertilized egg after it had divided into a two-cell embryo. Then these two cells continued to grow and proceeded with the cell division process. In order to avoid an ethical crisis, the researchers used a defective or abnormal three-nuclei fertilized egg that would only exist for about a week. No babies or several-month-old embryos were cloned. Doctors Jerry Hall and Robert Stillman were simply trying to find more efficient ways of creating fertilized eggs for couples who are trying to conceive a child through their in vitro fertilization or test tube program. By their experiment, the scientists planted a seed indicating that human cloning, copying DNA and genetic material from one nucleus to another or several others, and creating multiple identical twins were a possibility. Note, Dr. Stillman's original scientific paper on the subject and experiment was read on October 13, 1993, which was only 11 days after, uh, before the October 24th article here in the New York Times. I'm just adding this now, which was the day of the Uranus-Neptune conjunction. So Dr. Stillman's original scientific paper on the subject and experiment was read on October 13th, 1993 in Montreal at a meeting of the American Fertility Society. Monday, Tuesday, October 25, 26, 1993. Within 24 hours of the New York Times feature, scientists and re religious zealots were already engaged in a heated and stormy debate about the ethics of cloning and playing God with human embryos. The Vatican's official newspaper was shocked by the experiment and strongly advised the U.S. government to control the researchers who were entering, quote, into a tunnel of madness, unquote. Dr. Stillman appeared on ABC's Nightline and objected to the hysteria, reminding millions of Americans that their experiment was extremely limited in scope, merely a beginning, and intended to help infertile couples have a better chance of having their dreams come true by being able to conceive a baby through the test tube process. Nevertheless, all kinds of nightmare scenarios began to be raised about cloning hundreds of futuristic Hitlers, couples creating frozen embryos for years later when they could decide to have another baby, where that, that baby would be an identical twin of the original child, now 5, 10, or 15 years old. Some people worried that couples might clone many embryos and attempt to sell them to infertile couples 
partly by showing each a partly by showing such a couple how the original baby had grown up to be such a wonderful, healthy, and vital daughter or son. There was also the fear that couples would keep identical twins in reserve in case the original baby needed a transplant, new organ, blood transfusion, etc. Not so long ago, a couple decided to have a baby for one reason only. Their child needed a bone marrow transplant and the only likely successful donor would be another child. Newsweek magazine, November 8th, 1993, which is 15 days after the Uranus-Neptune conjunction. I'm just adding that now. So Newsweek magazine, November 8th, 1993, edition, page 61, reported that Jeremy Rifkin, a major rabble-rouser who was writing several excellent books about modern scientific and governmental ethical disputes, quote, plans to lead weekly anti-cloning demonstrations at laboratories and clinics all over the country, unquote. By the way, think about the anti-vaxxers now. Think about, again, the whole science versus religion or science medicine versus religion with the president coming out demanding that uh, churches and synagogues and mosques open, that he will override governors and creating this whole threat where he wants um, all these places of worship to be open even though he is not focusing on the concern 100% of making sure that everyone wears a mask and prevents super spreading and uh, social distancing and all that. And again, he is not demonstrating uh, what you need to do by wearing a mask himself. So back to the storyline here. Mr. Rifkin was quoted as saying in regard to the cloning experiment that it was, quote, no less important than the first time they split the atom, unquote. My response, meaning my Mark Lerner response to this whole thing back in 1993 in that article. I had not intended to make this a cover story, see our design on the cover this month, but when the controversy broke, I realized this situation was directly related to the Uranus-Neptune conjunction we have been tracking all year. Of course, the fact that the cloning experiment was revealed to the public on the day of the conjunction clinched the decision. But now we reach the most momentous and extraordinary aspect of all this. While I knew the experiment involved simple cells, it seemed much more realistic and dramatic to portray the issue by showing identical embryos on the cover of of our magazine, Welcome Planet Earth, along with a question mark symbolizing the dilemmas and uncertainty involved. So... I looked through my bookshelves to find pictures of embryos, cells, cell division, evolution, and the like. A book in the Life Nature Library series on cells had a small drawing of an embryo. And at the public library the next day, I borrowed an even better book. This would help our artist Percy Franklin complete his work for the cover feature. Simultaneously, I found another book at home in the Life Nature Library series on evolution. Here's here's where my process, turning the page here, bear with me. Here's where my process of deciphering the source of the cloning question became transformed into a true adventure. Upon opening the book on evolution, the focus was on two individuals born in the 1800s, Charles Darwin and Gregor Mendel. As I read the material, I was overwhelmed by the synchronicity between the experiment reported on October 24, 1993, the pioneering and controversial work by Charles Darwin, and the experiments conducted by Gregor Mendel on heredity in the 1850s and 1860s. Now we must pause for a moment and go back to last month's magazine. 
our Scorpio 1993 cover story. The design on last month's cover was intended to be a mandala, a sacred redrawing of the ancient Chinese Tao symbol, updated with the Urana symbol in white coming out of the black yin dimension and a Neptune symbol in black coming um, out of the white yang dimension. The idea behind this image was the sacred unification dance of these two outer planets occurring on October 24th, 1993. And remember that Uranus is considered a higher male energy while Neptune functions as the higher female vibration. So you could look at the Tao Uranus-Neptune mandala as a kind of fertilized cell uniting cosmic male and female principles within its nucleus or center. Again, this was all done way before the cloning experiment was announced on October 24th, 1993. Also on page three of last month's edition, and I'm, I'm going to just pause here, and this is really, really amazing here. So also on page three of last month's edition, there was a feature entitled, quote, could there, this is in our own magazine, could there be another you? where an astrological research organization is working on time twins, people born on the same day in the same year, in different parts of the world. The article even mentioned the unusual fact that Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln were born on the same day, February 12, 1809, and that their careers and destinies peaked in a similar time period, 1859 and 1860, the publication of Darwin's shocking on the origin of the species in 1859 and Lincoln's election as U.S. president, November 1860. As you will see in a moment, this also becomes a central part of our story on cloning. Now this next subtitle, back to evolution, Darwin, Lincoln, and Mendel, Uranus, Neptune, and Pallas Athena enter the scene. I had known about Darwin and Lincoln being time twins for many years. However, I thought it rather uncanny that we had published this information last month, and even the book on evolution mentioned this strange twist of fate. I had a chart for Abraham Lincoln at home and looked at it. Lo and behold, I remembered that Lincoln, and therefore Darwin, was born on the day of a Uranus station. This can only happen on two days every year, and it indicates that soul incarnating can become an incredible channel for the planet motionless or stationary in the zodiac. In addition, Uranus was within three degrees of the lunar north node, fate destiny point. Both Lincoln and Darwin entered humanity to provide a Uranian spark to be lightning rods for some kind of revolutionary activity. They also were born with close conjunctions of Saturn and Neptune in the early degrees of Sagittarius, a traditional sign of ethics, religious fervor, and philosophy. Thus, we see that Lincoln and Darwin were born with powerful Uranus, science, and Neptune, religion, placements. Now on October 24th, 1993, with the new science versus religion battle erupting over cloning of human embryos, it seemed appropriate to return to two granddaddies of the 1800s. Clearly, Dar Charles Darwin is a true trailblazer in the field of evolution, because his work on the origin of the species and later the descent of man in 1871 galvanized the entire question of human evolution. Before he appeared on the scene, the religious figures of the time assumed that humanity had sprung to life in 4004 BC through God's act of creation of Adam and Eve. From that miraculous beginning just a few thousand years ago, supposedly all human beings had subsequently evolved. 
Darwin revealed that humanity had other origins, going back millions of years, connecting human evolution to that of other mammals, including apes and monkeys. His work and research, research sent shockwaves through the scientific and religious um, areas of society in the second half of the 19th century. And that battle, evolution versus creationism, still exists in an even more powerful form now, particularly in regard to the disguised yet parallel war between pro-choice and pro-life supporters around America and the world. But you need to stretch your imagination with me as we go back to the subject of Darwin and Lincoln being time twins. Being time twins is a mirror reflection in the social world of what identical twins is in the cellular world. While Lincoln was not directly involved in the scientific debate over evolution, his election as president in the fall of 1860 was the true catalyst splitting apart, quote unquote, splitting apart the North and South in America, leading to the Civil War just five months later. Yes, Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin were both individuals who became larger than life figures, splitting apart and dividing enormous groups of people. Lincoln did his work in the political, social, governmental, and ethical realms, free versus slave issue as a major component of the Civil War while Darwin accomplished his dichotomy in the realms of science, religion, culture, biology, evolution, and ethics as well. In a sense, these two men were, quote, spiritual clones, unquote, revolutionary soulmates on a global scale, drastically altering the future of humanity. Now hang on for a few more paragraphs, so you, and I'm going to turn the page here, a couple of pages. Um, okay, so hang on. As you can see, the astrological tie-ins between Darwin, Lincoln, the current Uranus-Neptune conjunction, and Pallas Athena. Gregor Mendel. Perhaps the most astounding part of our story, and by the way, there is a chart for Gregor Mendel uh, that accompanies this. It's in Great Bear Enterprises in the Mark Learner Astrology Radio Astroscope section. Gregor Mendel, perhaps the most astounding part of our story concerns a rather obscure Austrian monk and botanist. Notice the Neptune and Uranus connections already in his religious and scientific interests named Gregor Mendel. As I continued reading the book on evolution, the author discussed the detailed research work by Mendel on the garden pea. Mendel conducted extraordinary experiments for many years, cross-breeding cross peas, creating hybrids, until he finally discovered the principles and formulas regarding heredity and dominant and recessive characteristics. Essentially, even though he didn't know what genes and chromosomes were, Gregor Mendel had discovered the core foundation of the genetic makeup of life. Thus, he is considered the father of genetics. After conducting meticulous work for well over a decade, Mendel read his paper on, quote, experiments in plant hybridization, unquote, before the Brun Society for the Study of Natural Science in February 1865. By 1866, his monograph had been published. The response was a total zero, silence, until 34 years later in 1900, when Hugo de Vries and two other researchers almost simultaneously brought Mendel's pioneering work out of obscurity. When I was a student in high school studying biology, cell division, and heredity, I was fascinated to learn of Gregor Mendel's work. That was in the mid-1960s. Now, nearing nearly 30 years later, I was being reintroduced to the man's amazing work. However, I was also intrigued by two more unusual links. Ruth Moore, the author of the Life book on evolution, says this about Darwin on page 67 of her book, quote, 
For all the carefulness of his work, he could never figure out the pattern, emphasis added by me, the pattern or order of inheritance that he felt certain must exist, nor apparently could anyone else, unquote. That is, this is again talking about Darwin. Darwin couldn't figure out the pattern. That is until Gregor Mendel succeeded. While reading all of this, I was also editing Eleanor Bach's article on Pallas Athena Part 2 for this month's magazine. Eleanor has always suggested that Pallas is involved in immunology, DNA, and genetics. Once again, in this feature, she discussed Pallas Athena's rulership over weaving and, see, and therefore seeing patterns in life, society, relationships. I had a feeling that in printing out Gregor Mendel's birth chart, there would be a powerful emphasis on Pallas Athena. Subtitle now, again from this article, The Uranus-Neptune Conjunctions of 1821. Imagine my sense of complete astonishment to note that Gregor Mendel was born on July 22, 1822. Now, let me just make a point. When you, I wrote this in 1993. When I looked up his birthday now, some of the places are misquoting his birth as July 20th, 1822. The rest of them have July 22nd, 1822. But regardless, even with the two-day difference, what I'm about to share is exact and important. So again, um, as I wrote here, imagine my sense of complete astonishment to note that Gregor Mendel was born on July 22, 1822. The three previous Uranus conjunctions in early Capricorn had just occurred in March, May, and December of 1821. In looking at Mendel's birth map for the first time, I saw that he was born with a Uranus-Neptune conjunction within about one degree of exactitude at four to five degrees of Capricorn. The father of genetics was born at the previous Uranus-Neptune cycle 171 years ago. His life work is the cornerstone of the present, ex present experiments in cloning now 171 years later on October 24, 1993. He was also born with the moon in Virgo, meticulous research on plants and heredity, Pluto at one degree of Aries, Pluto at the start of a 248-year cycle through the Zodiac and closely squaring his Uranus-Neptune conjunction. And he was also born with Jupiter expanding horizons at zero plus of Gemini, science and knowledge, having just entered the first air sign of the Zodiac two, two days before his birth. And now this is in bold from 1993, what I'm about to share. Nonetheless, Besides being born at the previous Uranus-Neptune conjunctions, Mendel also has Pallas Athena at 16 plus degrees of Aquarius, precisely with the lunar north node, the fate destiny point. A planetary body right on the lunar north node suggests that the soul incarnating must utilize the principles and qualities of that planetary body on the highest levels. Remember that Pallas connects with genetics, heredity, and weaving, seeing patterns. Mendel not only carried the spiritual aegis of the previous Uranus-Neptune conjunction in the realm of science, but he was an ambassador of Pallas Athena, revealing the genius, strategy, and brilliance of this often overlooked asteroid goddess. Uh, now the next subtitle, and I am nearing the end, of the near end of this particular article, and then we will continue with the third article, which is Eleanor Bach again, Pallas Athena Part 2, which connects back to Podcast 48. Okay, so here we go. Back to Darwin and Lincoln. But we're not done yet. Two days before Uranus and Neptune conjuncted on October 24, 1993, Pallas made a direct station at 22 plus of Aquarius. 
Thus, the palace Athena energies were still incredibly potent on the day of the Uranus-Neptune conjunction, when the cloning embryo heredity genetic story and furor broke. So we note that Pallas had returned to the sign it was in, Aquarius, revolutionary breakthroughs in science, when Mendel was born 171 years ago. However, Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln were sun sign Aquarians, born with their sons just five degrees from Pallas, also in Aquarius. Okay, uh... And note that the Pallas station of October 22, 1993, just before Uranus-Neptune conjunction, occurred within one degree of the sun placements for Darwin and Lincoln. In an odd way, the recent Pallas station in 1993 was pointing me and all of us back to Darwin and Lincoln, born as time twins 184 years ago. Note, any research from the field of astrology... Uh, will have a connection to his or her research. In this case, you should realize I am born when Jupiter is rising at 22 plus degrees of Aquarius, positioning the recent palace station right on my Jupiter and indicating that the Darwin-Lincoln sun degree il illuminates my Jupiter. I'm also born within one day of a Uranus station and two days of a palace station. There are several other strange planetary connections to this unfolding story. Um, Darwin, Lincoln, and Mendel all had Mars in Libra, marriage and divorce, unions and separations, and Mars would be in Libra again on the dates of the first publication for The Origin of Species, November 24, 1859, and The Descent of Man, February 24, 1871, the twin books that brought Darwin scientific fame and religious scorn. It is noteworthy in keeping with the pattern genetic cloning theme of Pallas, that we find Pallas and the lunar north node exactly conjunct at 14 to 15 degrees Aquarius on the date of publication for On the Origin of Species. The, this not only plays up the importance of Pallas, but it also represents the rare return of Pallas and the lunar north node to the same position Aquarius where they conjoined 37 and a half years earlier at the birth of Gregor Mendel. On the day of the publication of The Descent of Man, the sun at five degrees Pisces precisely opposed Pallas Athena at five plus a Virgo. Here was a full moon type of illumination of the Pallas Athena principle, genetics, evolution, heredity for all the world to see. And in another example of bizarre planetary asteroid hookups, we note that at the publication time for the descent of man, Juno, empowerment, disempowerment themes, atmosphere, marriage, and unions, and Uranus, revolutionary shocks and science were conjunct at 23 plus of cancer when, when Darwin's previous book was published in 1859, these two bodies, which is Juno and Uranus, were directly opposite each other from five plus Sagittarius where Juno was to five plus Gemini where Uranus was. Notice that the Sun-Palace polarity for the descent of man exactly squares the Juno-Uranus polarity for the origin of species, setting up a precise grand cross in mutable signs. It just goes to show you that even books have a life of their own and can be connected via amazing astrological transits over the years. By the way, I said earlier tonight, as I'm doing this, Juno is stationary where in Libra, which is where Mars was uh, for both for Darwin, Lincoln and Mendel all have Mars and Libra. By the way, that's also where I have Mars. So that's part of, part of the reason I'm even doing this in the first place, doing the research. So then the last paragraph, the beginning, not the end. In the months to come, we will undoubtedly hear more about cloning and this latest science, Uranus versus religion, Neptune debate. 
What may be most crucial to realize is that the seed for cloning has been released. As Jeremy Rifkin has suggested, this could be as significant as the splitting of the atom, and the impact on humanity will probably not be felt until decades have passed and we are no longer functioning in our current bodies. Right now, the scientists at George Washington University Medical Center are in a resting mode, not moving any further in the experiments while the ethical storm rages around them. But as with atomic energy, the, the cloning genie is now out of the bottle or magic lamp and there's no way to put it back in. And that, that's how I ended that story. A couple of things before I read Pal's Athena Part 2. Um, which is, again, wonderful to read Eleanor Bach's second part. The the third magazine um, that we have in the Great Bear Enterprise section for this Podcast 50 is from Virgo of 1994. And you'll see we had DNA uh, in red, green, and A in big letters on, the, on a Pallas Athena symbol. The symbol for Pallas Athena is the diamond over the cross. And you'll see the the double helix um, that we the artist drew so that you get to see that. And the title, the subtitle of that issue under DNA was The Palace DNA Connection. And this had to do with O.J. Simpson and the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and um, uh, that happened at that particular time period. And we had a whole bunch of stories and Ron Goldman. And I did a story about that. Other people were doing stories about it. But in the story, there had to do a lot. Of, I was quoting from Eleanor Bach. This is, again, months later. I'm going to read to you from Palace Athena. And I'm not going to read this part about the Palace DNA connection from Virgo 1994. But I did um, share a whole bunch more in there. I, I don't know. I might actually do that. Read it from the end. I'll see. I'll see how far we get with this. But... That's why I wanted you to see the cover, um, that Pallas Athena is so prominent in immunology with DNA, the genetic code, Gregor Mendel's chart, the Uranus-Neptune conjunctions from 1993, the fact that Hillary Clinton was in charge of healthcare, it didn't work, and then uh, in a parallel um, way under Obama, it worked when we got the Affordable Care Act, but now it's being uh, pulled apart by the Trump administration, because again, he's he's getting rid of everything positive that happened with the environment and so many other things preparing for the pandemic and preparing for so many things because this particular president, he won't even allow the portrait, which is a particular thing that all presidents do, the previous pe person, that somebody will do a portrait, put it up in the White House. And even though the political views will be different, we know that President Trump right now is not wanting to... Uh, give any credit to uh, President Obama is tearing him apart. There's creating another whole division in the country among uh, one administration and another and won't allow his portrait to go up in the White House. So we even see that petty, pettiness at work here. So we'll see how far I get and what time it is when I get done because the Palace Athena story, I want Eleanor Bach to have um, her time in the sun here again. Um, she, she passed away 25 years ago and I just feel privileged again to be able to return to her writing and ideas here. So this is probably where we're going to end. And maybe another time I'll share about um, what happened with the O.J. Simpson trial and, and the work with DNA at that point. Because it's very interesting, actually, what, what happened uh, in the summer of 1994. But at least you'll see the cover story. Okay, so here we go. Let's see how far I can. I'm going to read the whole thing no matter what. So again, remember, you're on this long plane trip to Hawaii and you're watching a multi-hour uh, 
something either like watching Lost or The Lord of the Rings or whatever it is, and, and it just keeps on going. Okay, so this is Eleanor Bach. The first one was extraordinary. That was in podcast 48. It was in, it was in a previous issue. Uh, and now there's this one. Again, she wrote this back in December, or at least she submitted it in December of 1993, and that's 26 and a half years ago, approximately, that our readers were reading this all around the world. Palace Athena, Part 2, Some Associated Myths of Palace by Eleanor Bach. Tiresias. Palace Athena is modest. When Tiresias accidentally surprised her in her bath, she laid her hands over his eyes and blinded him. But she gave him inward sight by way of compensation. I don't think the modesty of Pallas is really the issue here. This story probably means if you want to see clearly, you should shut your eyes to that which is of prurient interest. In other words, get your perceptions, um, get your perceptions on a higher level. Doesn't that seem a more logical message than merely as a demonstration of punishment for, for violating the modesty of the goddess? Arachne. Pa Pallas was for the most part a pretty serene personage. Graves says that Graves says there is only one occasion when Pallas showed petulant jealousy. There was a maiden named Arachne who was so excellent at the art of weaving that Pallas herself could not compete with her. Arachne had woven a cloth that was a magnificent piece depicting the loves of the gods, and try as she might, Pallas could find no fault with it. She finally tore it up in a cold, vengeful rage. The terrified Arachne, in despair, hanged herself from a rafter. Pallas then turned her into a spider and the rope into a cobweb of which Arachne climbs to safety. Graves suggests that this story may be more than just pretty fable. It may record a commercial rivalry between the Athenians and a certain group of people who were of Cretan origin. Their, em their emblem was a spider. Athena, he says, had good reason to be jealous of the spider. This story represents the, the city of Athens in competition with another city in its textile industry. Pallas's association with textiles is quite literal. An example, some years ago, there was a solar eclipse in nine degrees Taurus, conjunct transiting Pallas, also in nine degrees Taurus. That week, TV was repeatedly showing a gigantic tapestry that was being worked on by a large number of weavers in a bank in full view of pass passersby. It was designed by a Czechoslovakian or some such European weaver. Some months later, a client came to see me who had vested in nine Taurus in her 11th house. I remembered that eclipse with sun, moon, conjunct palace and nine of Taurus, and I asked her how she experienced it. I told her about the huge tapestry in the bank. Laughingly, she said, quote, I was a part of that group. I was one of the weavers. And Eleanor Bach um, put, this in, put this in bold. It was wonderful. It really felt like a family, Vesta, of friends, all of us so busy on that project. This young woman has palace in her second house. That's the way she made her living, through weaving. The significance of the story of Arachne is not, is not that de jealousy is a characteristic of the principle that palace represents. It is not. The importance of the story is the association of palace with the craft of weaving and with symbolic significance of that craft. Arachne is palace. A manifestation of Pallas as an industrious maiden skilled at linking the many colored threads of thre uh, colored strands of thread in such a way as to create a picture. This is this is the mind of Pallas at work, weaving, linking, making connections, and bringing all of the strands together to tell a story. This is a very important symbol, weaving. It indicates more than mere perception or simple common sense. It represents mental in intricacy. 
the ability to perceive and create a most complicated and intricate pattern to create order out of chaos. Let me pause here for a second. When you look at Eleanor Bach's chart from two podcasts ago, podcast 48, you will see again, she has Pallas conjunct her own North Node, which is the Saturn placement in the United States chart. And the reason I'm connecting this a lot with what's happening with President Trump and the administration is that the United States has moon conjunct Pallas Athena at 26 plus of Aquarius. The president of the United States has a very weak Pallas in his chart, in, in the way I look at his chart. He, he has uh, Juno strong because it's conjunct Chiron, but his Juno-Chiron conjunction, the president of the United States, is exactly where Pallas Athena was for Eleanor Bach and her own North Node, which is also the United States Saturn, which can be a vulnerable point in our birth chart, or it can be a point of responsibility and hard work and dedication, or it can be where our fears grow. So the reason I'm reading from Eleanor Bach is that she has Pallas conjunct her own North Node, and it's in her 12th house, which is kind of more of a metaphysical spiritual level. So this is why I'm taking this extraordinary st step to reread, to read what she wrote. I've never done that before, but it was in our magazine and she's uh, passed away 25 years ago, but her story reveals still because her Pallas Athena and North Node are on the United States Saturn. And that's where the president of the United States has more planets in Libra actually than anywhere else, including Juno conjunct Chiron at the same exact point. And then in the May 2nd, 2019 start of my podcast, that's exactly where Pallas was at um, 13 plus degrees of Libra. So somehow it was always destined that I would get around to reading these stories by Eleanor Bach and that um, I didn't even remember that she had written two parts and I hadn't actually gone back to reading all of this until I decided this was something important to do. And part of the reason I'm doing it again is we have Pallas conjunct Saturn right now, and that Pallas has just stopped at zero plus of Aquarius. And as I shared in many other podcasts, we just had Mars conjunct Saturn on March 31st at zero plus Aquarius. Now Pallas is stationed at zero plus Aquarius. And the big alignment of the whole year, which happens after the election, is on December 21st when Jupiter and Saturn start this wave or what we call a mutation of Jupiter-Saturn cycles in the air signs, which will last into the 22nd century, and Jupiter and Saturn converge at zero plus Aquarius, and the presidents are inaugurated when the sun is at zero plus Aquarius, as I've shared many times now before, which started January 20th of 1939, after an amendment to the Constitution, changing the inaugural date from March 4th to January 20th for various reasons, and so therefore Mars conjunct Saturn on May, March 31st of this year, which is a very troubling conjunction, which happened right in the midst of the United States, suddenly having to deal with the pandemic and the whole world, realizing uh, how, how detrimental the whole thing was. We had Mars conjunct Saturn at zero plus Aquarius. Pallas Athena has just stopped at the same point. Therefore, that degree is now impregnated with Athenian, Pallas Athenian type energy. And now Jupiter and Saturn, the two largest planets in the solar system, will shift out of Earth signs where they've been uh, almost every 20 years since 1841. Um, except for the three conjunctions they had at the time when Reagan was president and almost was assassinated. And that's when John Lennon died uh, in December of 1980. And then in March of 80, 1981 and July of 1981, we had three Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions in Libra. But then we had Jupiter-Saturn in Taurus in the year 2000 under Bush and Gore. And now we're going to break out of all that, which is part of the reason 
the whole world is changing. Uh, things are more virtual. Things have to do more with ideas, more with science and the power of the mind and how we think through all of these things and use science and not necessarily religion. Not that religion will disappear. Our beliefs and our philosophies and our religious attitudes are important as long as they somehow coexist with working things out through science and things like that. And that's where Pallas Athena comes in here. So here we go back to the story. Um, so yes, uh, this is again Eleanor Bach. Yes, we will find that Pallas aspects, partic uh, especially when she is found in earth science, may literally have to do with textiles, with weaving, knitting, embroidery, crochet, macrame. But beyond that, these handicrafts also symbolize mental dexterity and interest, and interest I'm sorry, I can't pronounce this, intricacy of thought, especially when Pallas is found in air signs, as she had, by the way. This ability to use the mind to link, weave, to perceive, and create complicated patterns is the indication we have that Pallas is involved in computer technology in our time. A computer is kind of a brain. The seeds of the computer were sown in 1801, the year the first asteroid was discovered. That seed was the Jacquard loom. This remarkable machine was completed in that year. It was a machine which used cards with holes punched into them to control and determine the pattern of textile weaving, precisely like the first computers in our time. By 1806, this remarkable invention had revolutionized the textile industry and was declared public property in France. Another thing, since Pallas has to do with pattern perception, pattern creation, I believe that Pallas, again, on the microscopic level has to do with RNA, DNA, the fun fundamental genetic pattern or code of all living things. Let me stop here. These researchers now are talking, they will often talk and we will be bewildered. They will mention RNA. They will mention ACET, uh, number two, two receptors on cells and all these kind of things as they're trying to figure out what is going on with the pandemic. I just read that the virus, okay, this this um, SARS-CoV-2 that causes the COVID-19 disease, the size of a single virus is apparently one thousandth of the width of a human hair. So when we talk about people getting sick, it's thousands and hundreds of thousands of little viruses going out in a cough or somebody sneezes or whatever it is, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. So what we don't realize, and this is why we all have to protect ourselves and also sort of have a cultural kind of thing of saying, hey, um, let's respect one another because nobody knows if they're asymptomatic or not. So the wearing of masks, staying six feet apart and all of that is part of what we all need to do to sort of really be in all this together. So here we go back to the story of Pallas Athena where we're, this is again 26 and a half years ago after part one where she's already talked about Pallas Athena relating to immunology. Now she says another thing since Pallas has to do with pattern perception, pattern creation, I believe that Pallas again on the microscopic level has to do with RNA, DNA, the fundamental genetic pattern or code of all living things. Now remember in my going over Gregor Mendel's chart, who's the father of genetics, we found that he was born at the previous Uranus-Neptune conjunction, and he is born with Pallas Athena conjunct his north node in Aquarius. Well, Eleanor Bach is born with Pallas conjunct her north node in Libra. I mean, maybe she was Gregor Mendel in the other life or had some connection there, but it's too astounding 
that this is happening because these articles on Gregor Mendel and Eleanor Bach, um, or that Eleanor Bach wrote and that I wrote on Gregor Mendel, were all in this one issue, right? And in one case, we give to the world, maybe it was the first time that Gregor Mendel's astrology chart had been given out in a pioneering magazine. At the, and again, we're going back 171 years to the time when Uranus and Neptune were last in Capricorn together. He happened to be born then. He becomes the father of genetics due to his work with hybridization and the, and the P and uh, dominant recessive genes. He doesn't totally know what he's doing until other people sort of rediscover him in 1900 and start explaining, wow, this monk, this Austrian guy, you know, did all this stuff and we didn't realize, and he didn't realize he was looking into chromosomes and genes and he didn't know what they were because people didn't know about that at that point. And now we have Eleanor Bach and it's only recently that I looked, created her chart to see that she had palace conjunct, palace Athena conjunct her North node in an air sign. So her palace North node conjunction Libra is almost exactly trying Gregor Mendel's uh, palace uh, conjunction uh, to the North Node in Aquarius. So this is all astounding. And I, when I published all this, I didn't know that, I didn't even know what uh, Eleanor Bach's chart was at that point. And she didn't necessarily say, hey, Mark, put my chart in there. We could have, but she didn't ask me to do that. So we didn't do it. Okay. So back to the story. Uh, so she's talking about, uh, um, again, on the microscopic level, uh, PALS has to do with RNA, DNA, the fundamental genetic pattern or code of all living things. Therefore, let us look for major developments in the field of biological engineering with PALS stations, especially when she is in the sign of science, Aquarius, and chemistry, Pisces. Um, and by the way, next year, uh, in February, we will finally have um, Aquar uh, PALS uh, back uh, in its area in Aquarius, um, where it just retrograded now, or in other words, it's stationed right now at May 17th at zero plus Aquarius. It goes um, backward into Capricorn. Pal Palace and Saturn will actually make a conjunction in December, uh, December 2nd of this year uh, in Capricorn. That will be the only conjunction of Palace and Saturn at this time period although they were very close together in 1993 in October when uh, Uranus and Neptune came together. Okay, the contest with Poseidon or Neptune. Uh, this is back uh, in Eleanor Bach's story. Neptune contended with, Pal with Pallas for possession of the soil of Attica. She produced an olive tree as the best gift to humans. By a blow of his trident, Neptune produced, some say a horse, but others say a salt spring, a river probably claiming supremacy for commerce and the wealth of the seas. Graves says this is a political myth showing Neptune's unsuccessful attempt to become tutelary deity of Attica in place of Pallas. Uh, Keycrops, king of Attica, decided in favor of Pallas and her olive. Now remember, Pallas is a craftswoman, a technician, an efficiency principle. So when Graves says, quote, the cultivated olive was originally imported from Libya, which supports the myth of Athen, Athena's Libyan origin, but what she brought will have been only a branch. The cultivated olive does not breed true, but must always be grafted on the oleaster or wild olive, quote, unquote. Graves is pointing out this efficiency function of the goddess. What Pallas gave the Greeks was not the olive tree, but more likely a technique for making the olive tree more productive. Those trees which develop from seed alone produce very poor or scanty fruit. The trees which are grafted are, are lush and are incredibly more productive of fruit. 
The olive was big business in ancient Greece, as it still is today. So here, too, we see the connection of Pallas with the economy and with the technical expertise, which will make that particular economy, in this case, the olive industry, more efficient. Eric Tonius. The story goes that Poseidon played a joke on Pallas. She was in need of arms and was reluctant to borrow Jupiter's, so she asked Hephaestus to forge a set for her. Neptune told Hephaestus that Pallas was coming to his smithy, expecting to be made violent love to. When she arrived, he threw himself upon her, and as she tore herself away, he ejaculated upon her thigh. She wiped the seed off with a handful of wool and cast it away. It was it fell to earth near Athens, where Mother Earth was on a visit and accidentally fertilized her. Mother Earth was so revolted at the prospect of having to bear a child not meant for her that she declared she would take no responsibility for its upbringing. So Pallas took charge of the infant soon as he was born. She named him Erichthonius, hid him in a sacred basket, and gave him the care of the eldest daughter of Kecrops with orders to guard him carefully. Later, the girl's sisters and mother peeped into the basket, and when they saw that the child had a serpent's tail instead of legs, they went mad and threw themselves off the Acropolis. After that, Erictonius took refuge in Pallas's aegis, whereupon she reared him so tenderly that some mistook her for his mother, which she probably was, for this story, according to Gray's, is very likely Hellenic in invention to account for archaic images of Pallas, wherein the strange serpent child was depicted peeping from the pouch in her aegis. Graves also says it is far more likely that this is an example of iconotropy, the accidental or deliberate misinterpreta misinterpretation of a sacred picture or rite, of the occasion upon which Kecrop's daughters leaped from the Acropolis was probably an Hellenic invasion, after which the captors attempted to force monogamy upon Pallas's priestesses, but they prefer death to dishonor. Isn't it interesting that at the beginning of the Aries age, the fate worse than death was monogamy or marriage? How times change. Protectress of heroes. There were many heroes for whom Pallas functioned as a fairy godmother. She came to their aid in their moment of anguish and trial. In the War of the Giants, Pallas secured the aid of Hercules, then, um, or as she called it, Heracles, then lent him her counsel and afterwards sustained him in his great labors. She protected the Argonauts in their expedition. In fact, she taught Argos how to build the Argo. She gave a shield to Perseus when he slew the Gorgon Medusa, who with Poseidon had profaned her temple. She aided Theseus in his many contests with the enemies of man. She assisted Bellerophon in his endeavors to catch and tame the immortal horse Pegasus, which had sprung from the body of Medusa. One night, as Bellerophon slept, Pallas stood behind him and gave him a celestial bridle, begging him use it to tame the divine mount. The wooden horse was constructed by Apicius, a skilled craftsman under the supervision of Pallas. And Jupiter decided to withhold fire from you after Jupiter decided to withhold fire from humanity, Prometheus appealed to Pallas for help. She permitted him to sneak up the back stairs into Olympus, where he lighted a torch at the fiery chariot of the sun. Stealing away again, undiscovered he gave the fire to humanity. Now, what I think this means, this magical hope to heroes, is that Pallas represents a necessary ingredient in any kind of heroic behavior. Pallas represents the heroes or heroines' own good counsel, ingenuity, resourcefulness, and determination. When the heroes prayed to Pallas, they were summoned up that within them, which was competent, excellent, capable, wise, and skillful to come to their aid. 
The heroes were daring, brave and brawny, no doubt, but their triumphs were achieved with the assistance and of the ingenuity and brilliance that palace represents, a union of brawn and brain. The ramifications of the palace principle. I have given you, I here given you um, a smattering of clues which I have garnered from the midst of relating to palace, clues which may reveal to us the nature of her manifestation in actual practice as the asteroid palace moves through her, her orbit. Let us review the various potential expressions implied by this interesting character. To begin with, it is apparent from the Greek version of her birth from Jupiter's head that she is, first of all, a mental or intellectual concept. It is from his head that she emanated, not from his side or his thigh or his back. She is a brainchild, that is, she is of the mind. She represents the most magnificent attributes of mind, our ability to reason, to think, to make connections, and therefore our ability to solve problems. She is not the head in the same sense as Mars and the sign Aries are said to have rulership over the head. The head in the Aries-Mars context is really more an indication of beginnings, the initial thrust, the first impulse to action, i.e. the head, its first to emerge at birth. It leads. Pallas and what is what's inside the head, the brain. She is the use we make of our brains, our ability to think. She is intelligence and the potential for excellence in general and in specific areas in accordance with her sign, house, and the asterisk she makes in the birth chart. She is the potential for genius. Let me pause here because she makes this big point. She is intelligence. And that is why the first 17 podcasts last year, which happened just at the time that the United States Secondary Progress Sun and the Pallas Athena Secondary uh, uh, Position in the United States Progress Chart, they merged at 15 plus a Pisces. And I shared this back at that time in 17 podcasts. And this is when the Mueller report was coming out. And that had to do with the whole intelligence system about the Russians hacking into our election and the president of the United States denying that that happened and the whole issue with Hillary Clinton and the emails and everything else. So um, I had been watching that cycle and this is still on pause before I go back to her article for many years before um, like, I don't even know when it started, somewhere around 2014 or something. I looked ahead and saw that the United States progressed sun and the progressed palace by what's called secondary progression. We're going to come into a conjunction. But when I saw that, I didn't know that Hillary Clinton, who was born with a palace, uh, state palace Athena station on the United States uh, moon and palace, that she was going to be definitely running. You know, there were rumors about her. And then as I proceeded and watched all of this, I realized that um, we were still four, uh, several years away. It wouldn't be till 2019 that the United States progressed sun and the progressed palace Athena would come into a conjunction in the middle of Pisces. So I, I didn't write any articles about it because we hadn't reached that time. And then once she lost the election and we had uh, President Trump and all the issues about where he's dismissing our intelligence and our CIA and the, and he's eliminated so many different positions and um, done all these end, run, uh, end runs uh, around intelligence and eliminating so many people and positions and, and trying to sort of make himself a law unto himself. That's the other thing, everything about laws and intelligent laws and justice and, again, protecting, uh, for instance, the whole uh, Department of Defense in many ways, because if, if you think of immunology, to protect ourselves and uh, the idea of the sword and the shield and the owl and these different symbols, which um, Eleanor Bach, uh, well, we'll get to that actually at the end here of this article. She gives the various symbols. I gave a taste of that the last time um, I shared her story. 
But that's why I wanted to pause here, because the whole idea of intelligence and excellence, which he had me write in bold and genius, a lot of astrologers will say, oh, Uranus rules that or Mercury rules that. But when we get to Eleanor Bach, she's so forceful and so clear about how the asteroids actually work, the four main asteroids, not just in individual people's charts, but in the cosmic calendar in terms of cycles in the sky and in terms of um, mundane or earth astrology and nations and leaders and so on. Okay, back to what she's writing. Uh, one of the fringe benefits of the ability to function with skill, competence, efficiency is a wonderful feeling of autonomy, uh, of self-containment, of being one's own person. We feel capable and in control. From time to time, we read in the news of an individual here or there who has had a brainstorm, an inspiration, who has solved a problem, who has exhibited excellence in some area, who has asserted his or her autonomy through the exercise of ingenuity. This phenomenon is an effect of the activity of Pallas. Pallas will be prominent in the charts of prodigies and exceptional individuals gifted with specific skills in the areas indicated by sign, house, and aspect. Um, by the way, another pause. The birth chart of Bobby Fischer, the great um, and also disturbed uh, genius of chess for the United States who defeated Boris Spassky, won the World Chess Championship, but then sort of fell apart psychologically and so on. His birth chart and his death chart, which I studied, are totally connected to Pallas Athena. And again, so uh, working with things like uh, Sudoku, board games, um, card games, word games, which are all patterns and numbers and words and things like that, that's also a function of very strong Pallas. So people who are into chess and into different kinds of gaming, and again, this relates back to what Eleanor Bach wrote about computers and technology, the patterns, the codes, all of these things. And again, things like secret codes um, and deciphering codes and everything about the internet and the World Wide Web. And again, hacking and voting and uh, all these kinds of things. They're all part of this kind of vast Palace Athena world. Okay, back to the story here. So... Uh, Okay, she says, Pallas will be prominent in the charts of prodigies and exceptional individuals gifted with specific skills in the areas indicated by sign, house, and aspect. Her activity is not limited only to the, so to the specially gifted, however. Pallas may be found anywhere. She may be the simple laborer who drops a suggestion in the suggestion box in the factory, a suggestion which will save millions for the company. Ingenuity arises from the practical attempt to make the work easier and more efficient. And it is in the interest of that person who has to do the work to find better, more efficient ways of doing things. That person will most likely be the most capable of solving the problems of efficiency in the plant. This is especially so now in this increasingly competitive world. The luxury or of inefficiency is no longer an option for labor or business. Palace is the housewife who makes the scraps left over from her sewing into beautiful quilts. She is the homeowner who insulated the home to conserve on fuel. She is the woman who, where necessity requires it, will save fat drippings to make her own soap. She is a recycler, and if this planet ever manages to survive the waste and depletion of its precious resources, it will have been Pallas who saw to that. For Pallas ab abhors waste. Waste is inefficient. Pallas will find a use for everything or will find ways of using things in the least wasteful, most efficient way. As goddess of cities... She is an urban deity, a city slicker. She is street smart. She is far more cosmopolitan than her country relative Ceres. 
she is not hostile to Ceres. Indeed, without Ceres, she could not perform. For in order that cities and their industries develop, there must be a plentiful supply of food and other produce of the earth to sustain the cities and to provide the materials upon which Pallas may apply for her expertise. Let me just pause here again. This battle that we're having now between science and religion, we're also having this war. Okay, the president said we have a war against invisible enemy. And in other podcasts, I've shared about the discovery of Eris, a planet far away from Pluto, twice as far, more than twice as far away. And um, part of the mythology of Eris, who's considered the sister of Mars in mythology, is that she caused the war, the Trojan War. And she has many other qualities of which many are favorable, but she's been relegated to this negativity. So because I wrote this article, which is still in our Earth Aquarius news section, Eris on Sedna in Donald Trump's chart as his at his inauguration back in 2017, you should go back and read that because that, again, is the reminder of the war against women the day after his inauguration, January 20th, 2017, women were marching all over the world um, because of the behavior of Donald Trump, which was revealed to the public, particularly in October before the election, uh, about what he had said about women um, with uh, Billy Bush in that famous uh, clip. Um, and then the president tried to apologize for it. Then the emails came out again uh, from the FBI uh, about Hillary Clinton and her own campaigning um, was was very paltry and she didn't do what she needed to do as a politician. She wound up losing Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. She never actually um, went to Wisconsin at all. And again, she helped to create her own deficiencies and, and losing the electoral vote. By the way, voting, not only protecting the nation from hacking, whether it's from Russia, China, anywhere, North Korea, or homegrown terrorism, um, the whole idea of, of mail-in voting is very crucial. The whole idea of the pattern of elections that we've, we have failed to make a consistent pattern. Here in Oregon, we've, we've been doing mail-in voting that also has been happening from Colorado, Hawaii, and I think Utah, or the state of Washington. And now California decided to put it in. And many states, of course, have absentee mailing and so on. And now the Republican Party in the last two days has, has created a lawsuit against Gavin Newsom trying to say he shouldn't be able to declare that California will have mail-in voting. And we know the president of the United States himself keeps saying that he mails in votes because he's in the White House and he can't get to Florida, makes an exception for himself, but everybody else he's declaring this is how there are erroneous and false returns through mailing, which has been proven over and over again, is not widespread at all. There may be a couple of minute cases, and otherwise, mail-in voting is very safe and protected. So this whole idea of the pattern, this kind of war that's become created between red and blue states, between the rural areas, uh, which are often more Republican, and the cities that are more Democratic, and that's part of the polarization in our country. It's part of this, it's, it's an another war, not just between red and blue states, it's between rural and city, as well as science versus religion. And these dichotomies and these polarities are very disturbing. So again, back to the storyline here, um, where she talks about Pallas Athena as goddess of cities. She's an urban deity. Uh, as I was just sharing, I'll just repeat this. A city slicker, she is street smart. She is far more cosmopolitan than her country relatives uh, series. She's not hostile to series. Indeed, without series, she could not perform. 
For in order that cities and their industries develop, there must be a plentiful supply of food and other produce of the earth to sustain the cities and to provide the materials upon which the palace may apply your expertise. One more pause here. All those pictures of the food lines in Texas and San Antonio, in California, and in other places, this horrendous kind of uh, situation. And the, the virus in the meatpacking plants and the President of the United States ordering them to stay open and workers not necessarily wanting to go back in fear of their lives. Again, the federal government versus the state governments, you know, um, a federal uh, edict or some kind of declaration for the president, which is often at odds with what governors or organizations and businesses and, and just workers who don't want to lose their lives because they don't feel they're being protected enough at some of these places, which have often become clusters of the coronavirus. Okay, so uh, Eleanor Bach continues, cities are centers of business, industry, manufacturing. Palace's skills are more suited to the whir and spin of urban life. Series may produce the raw materials of the earth and provide the labor that goes into giving form to things, but it is Palace who invents, designs, engineers the tools and machines and devises the systems which are prerequisite for turning the products of the earth into useful objects. Give her a bale of cotton and she will make fabric for you. She will decorate that fabric and design a dress too. Give her a lump of clay and she will, I gotta turn to the back of the magazine here. And we're, we are, believe it or not, getting toward the end. She will make you a set of dishes from clay. She will make a set of dishes. Give her a load of newly shorn wool and she will make a rug. You can see how important her involvement in the ec economies of states and nations must be. She is an economics principal. And let me pause her again. What is the president of the United States best desperate to do because of the pandemic and not dealing with this effectively, calling it a hoax, not recognizing the science and the medicine and making it sound like it's unimportant. Way behind, we have all of these people dying. Uh, he's trying to make believe. He says, if, if, if he had done nothing, I always find this to be remarkable. If he had done nothing, he says, we could have had one million or two million lives. It's one of these unbelievable statements that it's, it's so crazy. No one was going to do nothing. I've said this before. No leader know anyone anywhere, even the authoritarians. I mean, as much as other people, like the president of Brazil has been on the same page, there are a couple of other people in the world who have done nothing. One of the former Soviet republics, uh, I think it's Belarus, they are not even recognizing it. Whoever is leading that country is a dictator. And a lot of the countries we haven't heard from, and by the way, Aside from South, South America being an enormous hotspot, we have to be really concerned about how that will develop while we're going out in our summer. They're, as I said, they're having their winter. So is Australia and New Zealand, even though New Zealand doesn't has been doing remarkably due to their prime minister and being on top of this. And Australia's done pretty well as, uh, at, at the same time. We've got these other nations um, in the Southern Hemisphere and we don't know what's going to happen. Also in Africa, part of the reason why is like people might say, well, why are we hearing about Ethiopia? Why are we not hearing about the Congo or South Africa that much? Is In a lot of those countries, they don't have the medical staff. They don't have the testing and so on. And so Africa is just beginning. I mean, like, for instance, I haven't even heard any reports. I haven't looked into it totally, but I haven't, look, I haven't seen any listing of Egypt. What's happening in Egypt? Um, and they can have some, it's a very uh, populous area, 
And the question is, what are their hospitals dealing with? And the, Russia for a long time was like, oh, well, this must be a hoax because nothing's happening there. Now they, like America and Brazil, at the top of the heap of how many different people have this. And the question becomes also with China and some of the second waves that have happened recently in South Korea due to one person going to five different bars in South Korea, and they had to do a lot of contact tracing there. Um, the, the main country that seems to be doing the best of all, I mean, the two main countries like New Zealand, again, they're far in the Southern Hemisphere, so there are reasons for that, and a great prime minister, and Taiwan, uh, which is right off uh, the southern coast of China, and they've done remarkably well. But again, there's a lot of reasons why that is, and due to their pre preparation, their science, their focus, the contact tracing, the things that in the United States with 50 states and different governors and having, as I said before, two oceans, an Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, and the dreadful decisions by Trump when he would supposedly declare, wow, I've, I've saved everything because I stopped the uh, Chinese from coming here, but he didn't stop the Americans who had been in China from coming. And then when he stopped the Europeans from coming here and gave a three-day deadline, but he didn't stop all the Americans who were, who were in Europe. He just stopped the Italians, the French, the Germans uh, to give retribution to them because he didn't like what they had done with allowing immigration to come in there. And he thought he had done a great thing, gave his speech from the Oval Office. I, I heard it on the radio for nine minutes. I watched it again. I heard how he dissed the European powers and basically was saying, hey, you're not going to come here. That's that's what, you know, we're going to close everything down. But he gave a 72-hour window. And then the Americans who were in Europe, who and we now know that uh, the Americans who came from Europe, that the, the mutational form of the coronavirus at that point is from your, the European groups who were so affected, the people in Italy and Spain. After Chinese, after the Chinese Lunar New Year, the different Chinese uh, figures and people uh, from ambassadors and diplo diplomatic areas and other regions came back from China and Hong Kong and that area after the Chinese Lunar New Year, which again was not one day, it was 15 days of festivities, came back to Italy and to Spain and to France and to Germany and the United Kingdom and to the United States. And that's how the whole thing uh, of the virus came coming back and President Trump wound up being the major catalyst. Um, I don't care what anybody says, that is an absolute when you just look at the facts of what he did and how he did it, uh, basically in a retribution. And of course now it's all being whitewashed and as Barr, as uh, our Attorney General unfortunately said recently in an interview, and he, and he said this with a smirk and I just, thought, how disappointing is this, where he was asked about some things happening with the coronavirus and the government and what the, our ju judicial system might do or the Department of Justice might do in the future. And he said, well, you know, uh, whoever, whoever the winners are in history, they write, they write the history. And he, and he was smiling as if like, okay, if they stay in power, they'll write the history of the future and it'll be the way they want it to be. Okay, so back to Palace Athena and Eleanor Bach. So she says, certainly Palace is involved with economics and with trade, with every aspect of business, which depends for its success on the efficiency, quality, excellence of the products to be sold or bartered. She creates systems, systems of doing things economically. She is the efficiency expert. She must have invented the assembly line. She is a systems analyst, a technician. She is an entrepreneur. 
For sure, she was around when the computer was invented. As a matter of fact, since the computer is here to stay in almost every instance, palace and modern-day horoscopes will indicate an involvement with computers. The tamer of horses has harnessed energy in millions of ways. Every invention which saves energy time is a manifestation of palace harnessing the horse. Efficiency, skill, precision, coordination, all tools, machines, inventions, which make it easier for hum humankind to labor and which, and which enhance life are her work. No, no wonder Jupiter, the businessman, the manager wants to claim her for his own. He, he wants her in his service. This small planetary body is not a power principle of itself. She herself is not the boss, the indicator of authority. The power planets are Jupiter, the Sun, Mars, and even Venus too, for money and love are great powers. But palace in proper aspect to these bodies can show ingenuity and brilliance. For example, competence in administration, when in aspect to Jupiter, ingenuity with strategy and weapons in our time, strategic weapons and war, when in aspect to Mars. By the way, remember, uh, Athena was a goddess of the art of war. Okay, and I, and I told you that at the beginning of the year, we almost got into a hot war against Iran. And now we're in a war versus an invisible enemy. Uh, and, and of course, that uh, energy of war has a lot to do with Eris and its discovery chart, which I shared before, and being a planet far away, we don't understand it. And when the president of the United States became president, took the oath of office with uh, Mike Pence, Eris was exactly on his Sedna. Sedna is the other outer planet far away from Pluto, which I've isolated in terms of its quality of the frozen uh, part of its mythology, the idea of we're all frozen in place. Uh, so before I gave these concepts of frozen through Sedna, war with Eris, and the twilight zone with Chiron, and those are still very important principles that we're all dealing with because of the power of those celestial bodies. So back to uh, uh, Eleanor Bach talking about competence in administration when Pallas is an aspect to Jupiter, ingenuity with strategy, and weapons in our time, strategic weapons in war, when Pallas is an aspect to Mars, skill in government or, or self-projection when Pallas is an aspect to the sun, and brilliance in finance and art, aesthetic design when Pallas is an aspect to Venus. Pallas Saturn can mean severe austerity, which remember we're having Pallas with Saturn now, and they will come very close within a degree, they both stationed in the beginning of Aquarius. As I said before, they were in they were stationary at the time of the October November uh, October twenty fourth nineteen ninety three conjunction of Uranus and Neptune in Capricorn. And now, of course, as I said, with all these other planets now in Capricorn, Pluto, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, which will happen again as Saturn retreats into Capricorn and Pallas retreating into Capricorn, we're getting these planets: Pluto, Jupiter, and Saturn, the two largest planets and Pallas, all re-triggering the Uranus-Neptune, three conjunctions from 1993. So again, uh, Eleanor Bach is saying, Pallas-Saturn can mean severe austerity. So think about that. They're together, and think of austerity in terms of what we're dealing with with America and around the world, of people being at home, so many people being at home, the economy in shambles, uh, 40 million Americans out of work, the whole crisis over unemployment, of not having money, not being able to, people having so many difficulties paying mortgages and rents, getting food, and so on, and just the fear of all that. So Pallas and Saturn close together, rekindling their stations from 1993 at the Uranus-Neptune conjunction, and um, 
as Eleanor Bach says, palace Saturn can mean austerity, but also ingenuity with structural design, with Vesta involved great for architecture. A palace-Uranus combination is perfect for high technology and for harnessing electrical energy. And then she says, as a matter of fact, Thomas Edison had palace exactly conjunct Uranus in 11 to 12 degrees of Aries. Uranus is the electricity, but palace is the harness, the invention. Palace with Pluto can mean political, analytical, or psychological genius, inventiveness with oil. Palace Neptune can indicate choreography, musical excellence, expertise with film, photography, genius with chemistry, engineering with regard to rivers, canals, and waterways. Palace with Ceres can show innovation with regard to production as well as with farming technique. Palace with Juno is a sure indication of fashion design, also skill and diplomacy. Palace with the Vesta could indicate ingenuity with investment, architecture, as well as excellence in clandestine activities and espionage. Palace is a strategist. Strategy is her game. And this is interesting because she brings up Bobby Fischer. Uh, I'll bet she invented chess. And then she puts in brackets, Bobby Fischer, for one, has palace conjunct the sun in Pisces, exclamation point. That may be why I started studying him. I'm just adding this now. Because when he passed away, palace was again very very prominent at his death and showing the palace athena principle so strong so again she thinks palace is a strategist strategy is her game i'll bet she invented chess she mentions the bobby fisher connection having palace conjunct the sun and pisces she put the exclamation point in there her mind is everywhere and 10 steps ahead of everyone she has a knack for selecting the right move the best option that's why she can run circles around mars he may have he may have the brute strength, the courage, daring, and initiative, but she has the cleverness, the strategy. She has a whole view of things which enables her to participate, to anticipate and comprehend the needs and actions of the other, and therefore to, to triumph through wise strategy. Justice is dear to palace, perhaps not out of any great sentiment or idealism, but because injustice is ultimately inefficient, wasteful, and foolish. People cannot do or be their best when they feel mistreated, abused, violated, and above all, Palace wants the best of us. By the way, I have to pause here. The other night, again, I watched part of Wonder Woman, and I knew there's a new Wonder Woman. I think it's Wonder Woman in 1984, and the amazing actress uh, Gal Gadot plays uh, this Wonder Woman figure, and it's such a focus on Palace Athena as a warrior goddess. To me, it's an extraordinary thing that that has come to life in the last couple of years. And all these movies, some of which, you know, a lot of people think are junky of the Justice League and the, the superheroes. I just also watch part of, um, part of this is just to periodically watch something imaginative, getting away from all the, the news stories. So I try and balance, and not really balance, but here and there, catch a movie and uh, watching these different figures like Flash and uh, Superman and Batman and Aquaman uh, and Wonder Woman. And it's just an extraordinary example of Palace Athena in that role. And I guess the other movie that they already filmed, uh, Wonder Woman 1984. You want to see a kind of, uh, I mean, again, there's a whole bunch of uh, prehistoric or uh, the whole idea of an ancient culture of women who are in charge and men are not there in that culture. And this is a lot of what, what Eleanor Bach is talking about of Palace Athena and these goddess energies of another time period. 
and going back even before the Piscean Age, going back to previous ages of 2,000 plus years and 4,000 plus years, to other cultures where women um, did so much of the taming and the cultivation of society and the world. And so that's what she's really, you know, sharing with these articles. And at some point, I hope to read her Juno, her series, and her Vesta articles. Uh, and I did read some things of hers from Vesta in two particular um, podcasts about Vesta. But eventually we'll do more. Okay, so finishing up here. Justice is dear to Pallas, perhaps not out of any great sentiment or idealism, but because injustice is ultimately inefficient, wasteful, and foolish. People cannot do or be their best when they feel mistreated, abused, and violated. And above all, Pallas wants the best of us. Pallas is excellence in every area of endeavor, in the arts and science and sports and business. Her reflexes are perfect, precise, her efforts are not superfluous or wasteful. Pallas was there with all those who, through excellence in their fields, have won Nobel Prizes, Pulitzer Prizes, Olympic medals, Oscars, Tonys, or Obies, etc. Now remember, in, after the first year of his presidency, and this may be another thing about President Trump being jealous or envious of President Obama. Remember, President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize? Uh, and, of course, President Trump wants to win that. Uh, and has knocked uh, President Obama, you know, declaring that he should have never won it and on and on. So here we have um, another time I'll focus on Pallas Athena for the different presidents, in particular President Obama and some of these distinctions. But here Eleanor Bach is saying almost near the end of her article about Pallas Athena. Um, as she says, Pallas was there with all those who, through excellence in their fields, have won Nobel Prizes, Pulitzer Prizes, Olympic medals, Oscars, Tonys, or Obies, etc. What a wonderful principle that is, but her negative manifestation must be reckoned with too. Though she is a principle of justice, negative Pallas, negative Pallas may mean miscarriage of justice. Though she is a principle of efficiency, inadequate integration in the chart can mean there may be wasted energy and wasted resources. Though she is a remarkably remarkable percep perceptive principle, negatively there may be perceptive distortions. Though she represents our desire for autonomy and self-sufficiency, her negative form may indicate obstacles to autonomy, problems in achieving self-sufficiency. Though she can indicate protection, defense, shielding, immunity, her negative form may indicate inadequate shielding, and she concludes here, a defective immune system. Okay, so that's the end of her writing, but at the very end, she gives mythological emblems of Pallas. In nature, oil as feeding lamps and giving light. A lamp, an ancient symbol for light and consciousness. The olive tree, creator of the olive. The serpent, the ancient feminine wisdom. The owl, wisdom too, but this bird is almost silent flight, an extreme acute sight and hearing, a very efficient bird of prey. The cock as bird of morning, light, energy, and courage. A mythologically connected to Pallas in war, the aegis or repellent power, the shield, the defense and self-protection, the helmet, using the head in battle, strategy, but protecting the head as well, a spear, a spike, or a victory, a dart or a thunderbolt, weapons and arms, the laurels representing victory, recognition of heroism and oil for anointing heroes. And she concludes the mythological emblems of Pallas in human life, the serpent or dragon, Health, rejuvenation on one level and wisdom on another. The chariot and horses, horses in the service of men and women, horsepower, harnessing energy. The distaff, useful tools and instruments, goddess of employments for women. 
the scroll, the goddess of recorded knowledge, wisdom, and arts, vases called Athen vases, patroness of ceramics, the olive branch, inventress of the olive, and the palladium, the protectress, the protectress of national welfare. And so this concludes from Eleanor Bach. And again, she not only brought in the um, incredible uh, first, uh, the first series palace, Juno Vesta Ephemeris, which I have, I'm looking at right now, um, in hardcover in 1973 in New York, when I was so fortunate to go to her house with a group of other students every month. And she was a mother and nurturing. I've explained before a little bit of my connections with her and her with me. Um, I never imagined I would read um, 25 years after her passing these great stories. And I realize this has been very long. Uh, it's not the longest, but if you want short, um, short podcasts, Go to the Cosmic Calendar, Calendar with a K, our new um, app, um, and you'll be able to see Astrology in 5, where I read in less than five minutes each one from Mysteries of Venus. And that will give another perspective on the power of uh, goddess energies. So I'm going to end here uh, three hours and a few minutes. Thank you very much for listening. There's a lot of um, wonderful podcast material I'll be sharing. I say wonderful but I should say um, informative and focused about the election, about the election time period, new moons and full moons, eclipses, uh, the next inauguration chart, some really eye-opening stories. Um, I feel privileged to be able to do these podcasts. Um, I appreciate so much my, my daughter being able to set all this up and both of my daughters giving me the gift of this podcast center many years before my loved one passed away, and I've explained that before, where she had to um, be in the ICU um, and the ER five different times, totaling over 40 days. And it, it provides a kind of uh, a pre-awakening of what this whole pod pandemic is all about. Um, and while I emulate doctors and health professionals, my dad being a doctor, my uncle coming from a medical family, um, I find that the whole state of American medicine is in shambles, um, and it's just it's just a a grand disappointment, um, and it's just a heartache as we're seeing so much now and not not being prepared for the pandemics which we should have been prepared for from twenty plus years ago. Whether it was the Pentagon giving an alarming report in the year two thousand, even before uh, Bush and Cheney took oath, you know their uh, oaths of office and preparing for the future and warning signs and science and medicine, different people over these epidemiologists, people writing books and preparing for the country. And then it's just a, an absolute shame and a disgrace of what um, the political corrupt current government has been doing in destroying all the, all the gains in the environment um, and in terms of preparation under the Obama administration. And to then make it sound as if, like, as the president has been saying, the coverage were bare, doesn't make any sense. He's been president for three, three plus years. So if, if it's true, which it wasn't, that the coverage were bare, then he had all of 2017, all of 2018, all of 2019, 
and now that we're being in 2020, he had 36, 37, 38 months to replenish those cupboards, which were not bare. So we're having mass information, uh, misinformation in a massive way, and it's causing a, uh, a division in our society, just like, again, the whole science religion, the pro-choice, um, uh, the pro-life versus pro-choice, uh, the Roe versus Wade controversy, which again, we focused on in another story, which I'll probably read from another time. And we've just had the AKA Jane Roe, uh, a documentary revealing like the deeper truths of what happened with the person who was at the center of that from January of 1973. And we're still dealing with that whole fight of science versus religion and medicine versus religion. So, um, I'm sorry in many ways that this has had to be long, but I'm so glad I was finally able to read these stories. And uh, as much as I want things to be a lot shorter, there are still, um, when I talk about the election and my concerns about what's going to happen, and this is based on new moons and full moons and eclipses and alignments in, in the charts of uh, P President Trump and Mike Pence and Joe Biden and whoever he chooses and the time of the election and uh, the time of the inauguration, there are certain things that are set in stone because of our constitution. And even if our current administration tries to wriggle out of that and use the pandemic or uh, go, gets down on the United States Postal Service or tries to diminish the importance of mail-in voting and so on. And again, I'll just end on a positive note. Pallas Athena with the moon in the United States chart, they're in a conjunction from the birth of the country, July 4th, 1776. And in our progress, secondary progress chart, we still have the sun by progression, Pallas Athena and Sedna. And that's a tough situation because Sedna on the shadow side is feeling frozen in place. But Pallas Athena is all these things that Eleanor Bach has articulated. And the sun is the force of light and illumination. So we still have this opportunity. And I feel thankful, privileged that Eleanor Bach was a great teacher for me and so many other people. And therefore, the repercussions of what she did in bringing Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta to all astrologers and the awards that she herself won and being able to put her chart uh, available for people to know about and see her chart connected to the United States birth chart and these revelations, particularly now about Pallas, Athena and the power that um, she had in her own birth chart with Pallas, Athena conjunct her own North Node on the United States Saturn and connecting up to the president's chart, we use Chiron conjunct Juno at the same spot, and the juxtaposition between the feminine sensitive energies that an Eleanor Bach represents as a leader within the astrology field, and the way that the president behaves toward women um, around the country and around the world. And I think the juxtaposition of the differences here, and having a person like Eleanor Bach from the past who's no longer living, but her words are called to action and strengthening of intelligence and efficiency and organization and protecting the country and protecting the world um, through immunology, ge the genetic code, DNA, and exploring all of these amazing ideas and, and inspirations. So I'll leave you with all that. Thank you for listening. Next time will be podcast 51. I haven't decided exactly what that will be, but there's some uh, big stories that I'll be sharing with you. And again, thank you everyone for listening. Many healing blessings to you, your friends, and your dear ones. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.